My name is Paul. I'm this brother of Arena, number seven of the seven kids in that family. Um, I teach New Testament at Houston Baptist University, um, and I teach mostly the Gospels and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, I mean, I know John's there, but I mostly teach Matthew, Mark, and Luke, <laughs> and uh, Paul's letters because because you got you got John. Yeah. <laughs> you. Uh, and I teach Paul's letters a lot, uh, and I teach a lot of Old Testament. So we're actually going to spend more time than you thought you even wanted to in the, in the Old Testament tonight. Uh, but I teach a lot of Old Testament. Actually, I teach a lot of Leviticus, um, which is should be unironically everyone's favorite uh, book of the Bible, and I mean it unironically. Um, everyone, it's, it's, it's like the sleeper in the canon. Uh, no one knows how awesome that book is. So. Um, tell, tell me about our mutual friend Tom. Oh, yeah, talk about Uncle Tom. Yeah. Well, I work kind of more like peers to, you know. No, no, I get that, yeah. I uh, did grad school in St. Andrews where uh, N.T. Wright was um, and uh, took classes from him. And, uh, yeah, that's all I got on that. No one else is going to do any details. He is quite, he's he's incredibly, he's incredibly, incredibly nice. Um, He's incredibly humble. Compared to just sort of his status, right? I mean, his status is obviously high um, in the in the in the evangelical world and else, elsewhere, and uh, he's incredibly incredibly humble. He would um, just in case who he is, maybe. Yeah, N.T. Wright. Thanks, Mac. Anybody who doesn't know him, uh, fair. That's fair. He's There's a joke right now. If you call him and you're like, "Hey, is Tom there?" and they're saying, "Well, he's writing a book," and you go, "Well, I'll wait." Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, he's about published by number seventy-five this year, I think. Um, he is. A professor of New Testament um, at the University of St. Andrews when I was there. Now he's at Oxford. Um, he did his whole career at Oxford, and now he's basically retired to Oxford. Uh, but super uh, reputed uh, New Testament scholar, written a ton of books, popular and scholarly. Um, famous for uh, lots of books on Paul and Jesus. Um, yeah. Um, and did my PhD in, in, St., in St. Andrews, Scotland. Um, not with him. He, he, I took my master's courses with him. Um, yeah. Tell him a little bit about. So, like last time we had Peter come. I hate little, talking about myself, honestly. Like, <laughs> this is the best. And um, anyway, Paul and I started talking, and I, I'm always trying to find an excuse to get him up here, um, uh, just to hear him and, and share and talk about different things. So he and I were talking just about like, man, the world is. On fire, and I wanted to hear from him and like his perspective on some different things that are going on. And so maybe um, tell him a little bit about I don't know your role down at Houston and what you what you do as far as teaching goes, and then um, yeah, just what you're specifically like working with the students on. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, teach, I mean, so um, teach New Testament at Houston Baptist, and uh, mostly. Uh, Again, Gospels and Paul, and um, uh, particularly the, the big questions they have are sort of the uh, the kind of the, on, the ongoing validity or on, ongoing um, questions about the Mosaic Law in the life of the Christian. Um, for obvious reasons, when you get to the letters of Paul, if you don't if you don't know them, um, in the letters of Paul, Paul says things like, "If you are of the works of the law, you're under a curse, and the law is not of faith," and things like that. And he at times seems to um, seems to sort of uh, speak 
dismissively of the Mosaic Law. And so a live question is, okay, but, some, what's, but come on, it's not all bad, right? Like, like the Ten Commandments are in there, right? So like, isn't that still good? Um, so uh, what's the what's the ongoing role of the Mosaic Law in the life of the Christian? Um, and, and in particular, uh, in, in, in Houston Baptist, and I'm sure in lots of um, Baptistic, non-denominational, evangelical type churches, particularly in the U.S. and particularly in the South, like we're all in, um, we've inherited sort of a tradition of speaking about law and faith and works that makes discussion about obedience very difficult. Uh, these are my tradition growing up, which was Baptist. Uh, it still is. But I, 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 it was people just getting nervous talking about it because it, it just, it's, it's, e it's very easy, understandably, for discussion about obedience to collapse into discussion about legalism or earning your salvation and things like that. Yeah. And it is correct, and Paul, the apostle, would agree that yes, you do not earn your salvation, it's not legalistic. Um, and yet, he seems to still have a role for the life of obedience and the life of the Christian. So how do you talk about those things intelligently and faithfully, uh, maintaining both sort of the witness of the New Testament, uh, but, but without collapsing into... Um, the, the very negative spirals that people can go down, under, understandably, right? Um, so often that's where a lot of discussion heads toward with my students because that's those are the things they think about, understandably, when you read Paul's letters. I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a thing that comes up a lot. And then, particularly when you read the Gospels, right? When you read the Gospels, Jesus seems to talk an awful lot about the law and seems to have like a pretty high expectation that his disciples keep it. And he doesn't really seem to ever, ever say anything against the law, right? Um, and so, um, even one famous passage that we can talk about if you want about his uh, declaring the, about the food laws. Um, and so, because that's sort of the, the inherited view, namely that, you know, basically like faith good, law bad, um, it had become difficult for my students to really grapple with any of it. And then, once you get to that issue, it, then that's sort of the abstract theological issue, right? Once you get into the particulars of like, okay, well, what about this issue, or this issue, or this issue, or this issue, right? Um, the, the stuff they often had questions about were um, uh, uh, sexuality, and um, that's really the number one thing. So we, we were talking, I was like, so... And by number one, I mean only. <laughs> I was asking, so do you, there's like a lot of hot button issues that are in the world right now, um, so pick one, race, politics, or sex and sexuality. I was like, just and just put him into the fire and cannon and just let him be shot out and then and here we go. And so he picked sex. So, um, sort of, he picked a lot of things. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was happy to talk about ethnicity. Yeah. You can talk about ethnicity if you want. Um, that's a big, that's a big topic in interesting as well. Um, and so that we all will talk about it, but I'll let you that be one of the ones y'all. If y'all can prime the pump on that one, if that's one of the questions, uh, because again, Paul said again because of Paul um, says things like there in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, right? And that's easy to hear that as ethnicity is dissolved, right? Um, and so then when you get into current discourse about sort of ethnicity and, and the, the role of sort of ethnic boundary markers and uh, that sort of thing, um, it just gets touchy, particularly in the U.S. for obvious reasons. Um, so, anyway. Don't be, don't be. All right. Um, so um, I'll start with um, one of my favorite topics topics to, to talk about. Uh, jump in anytime. I'm going to leave tons of time at the end for questions, but anytime you have a question, just interrupt. Don't raise your hand uh, unless you want me to make fun of you. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But it, just jump in. Anytime. Interrupt me. Um, and 
and I'll pause you every now and again to ask for questions and pause for questions, but just really interrupt me because uh, I just this is a well-worn groove in my vocabulary now, so I I forget what it is that people don't know, right? Uh, because I talk about I, this is my job, so I talk about all the time. So if something just you all of a sudden forget, like just interrupt me. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is why discussion, why I'll say I'll say it controversially, why the law is a really really good thing and why every one of us should love the law, and why obedience should never be collapsed into legalism, and why, you can maybe say it even more controversially, why the Old Testament and Judaism are not legalistic, and why even, one more turn on the, on the screw, why Pharisees are not legalistic, um, and why that's like actually almost the exact opposite critique that Jesus makes. Jesus doesn't critique them of legalism, some of the opposite. So those are the, that's my most controversial way to put it, and now I'll, I'll try to prove it. Um, so let's start with the Old Testament. Um, God has rescued his people from Egypt, right? He rescues them from Egypt, he takes them into the wilderness, and in the wilderness is when he gives them the Ten Commandments and gives them the instructions for the tabernacle and says, build that tabernacle because I'm going to live there. So that's Exodus 25. Um, Build the tabernacle. It's basically it's a tent. I'll live there. I'll, 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 I'll dwell in the same space as you guys. Um, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And um, then they build the tabernacle. At the end of Exodus, chapter Exodus chapter 40, uh, God uh, dwells there. Non-metaphorically. Uh, literally. How else to say that? Right. Yeah, non-metaphorically. Uh, so that when you are, when, a, when the high priest enters into the sacred space of the uh, tabernacle, uh, he is entering into this space here. This is earth. That's heaven. Um, the intersecting point of this Venn diagram is the tabernacle. So when God, who dwells in heaven, tells him to build the tabernacle, he builds it. Or, you know, they build it. And then... Sorry. You can move that over. I will. Thank you. I already gave away the answer, but... Um, you wouldn't know how many... How many altars there are in the, in the tabernacle? Just set there's a pop with... As a pastor, I know, but I want y'all to Say what? <laughs> As a pastor, I know, but I want y'all to yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, no one answered. John, how many altars? <laughs> you had it right. I drew it up there. Yeah, there's two or three, depending on how you label this one. Um, so two or three is the correct answer. Uh, so that's the altar for burnt offerings. The O, this is the altar for incense. It's an I. And that's what's called the Ark of the Covenant. All right, Ark of the Covenant. Um, God labels this. He says, that's my, that's my throne or the footstool of my throne. So God dwells just above this. This looks like this, this, uh, this is God's uh, dwelling presence now. So that then if you zoom out, heaven and earth, this spot right here is this spot right here. This is the connection point between heaven and earth. So that when the high priest enters into, no, go ahead. When, you, when the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred space, he is entering into this space, the connecting point between heaven and earth. He is non-metaphorically in heaven. 
I'm trying to, to reconcile uh, uh, this with like um, this idea, because like, this seems to almost imply that like God is like a, an object, or like right, right, right. where he is, whereas right, right, right. You know, God is everywhere, God is in all things. Like, totally, like, they, they, they mention that a lot. First Kings 8 mentions that. Um, Solomon says, now we know heaven and earth couldn't contain you because you created everything, but thanks for dwelling here anyway. Um, so it's actually precisely because he's not an object that he can dwell here yeah. and everywhere. So that, um, but it's still nonetheless a, uh, do you have two yes. styrofoam cups? Yes. And a straw? I do. <laughs> so, but, but why do that, though, if he's already everywhere? Uh, because he uniquely dwells here, and he is, uh, this, is the, this is the space where he is, the way the Bible talks about it, he's made his name known here. So that when you enter into this space, you are a you are approaching his real presence. So that, yes, he's everywhere, but he has made his presence, this is the best word for it, he's made his presence tangibly known here. As a relational. He's made his his, uh, presence tangibly known here as opposed to everywhere else where it's it's there, but not. You would have a different encounter there as opposed to someplace else. Yeah, and what'd you ask for? It's like a relational opportunity. Yes, yeah, 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 precisely. And not, and, and, and in a positive sense, in the sense that it's it's here that he's just condescended to dwell, and says, this is where I'll meet with you. So this is actually called, this this is the other name of this is called the meeting place. Um, so it's called the tent of meeting. It says, yeah. go there and I'll meet with you. Anybody can deal with it? No. That's the big ticket. That's the problem. Is that only priests can officiate at the altars because... God's tangible presence is somewhat dangerous because he's making his presence known in a special way here. And because of our mortality, the fact that we are composed of dirt from Genesis 1, right? We're made of dust. And we're just like, we are, we have the kinds of bodies that are weak and mortal. Being in his presence is dangerous to us. Not out of malice, um, but precisely because uh, it, in the same way that we can't look at the sun. The sun is 93 million miles away, and you can't even look at it. it. And it's another created thing, right? The sun is another created thing, and you can't even look at it from 93 million miles away before your eyes hurt, you know. He's the uncreated creator who dwells right here, and we're, you know, un, we're uh, mortal creatures. And so to approach it is dangerous. Um, and so, to answer your question differently about how can he be here and everywhere, right? Uh, thank you, Reina. Perfect. Should have asked, do you have two styrofoam cups I can ruin? <laughs> um, String theory. If I, if this is, holds the ocean, this cup holds the ocean, right? Let's say it holds an infinite amount of water. And then I put a straw in it. And then I place that straw right here. And I ask you, where's the water? Where's the water? It's infinitely here, right? And it flows out of that straw and uniquely dwells in this spot. So that it's, yeah, it's infinitely here. But because God has chosen to put his straw right here, it's also tangibly known right here. So this is heaven space, the infinite space, right? This is earth space. So that if you are God's presence, you're in the infinite ocean, right? You're everywhere. But also, if you're on earth, earth's space, in you're, you're really in, tangibly in God's presence, right where these two Starbucks cups meet.
Does that make sense? Real with me? I feel like I've said it like 10 times, so. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 that's, no, that's a very good question. Uh, yeah, so heaven and earth, that's Exodus, um, second book of the Bible, in Exodus 25, he tells them to build the tabernacle, they build it, in Exodus 40, he fills the temple tabernacle with himself. Now they dwell there. The book of Leviticus is all about how to approach God safely. Because the problem is, we are mortal creatures. We are made of dust. We can't approach the uncreated creator safely. It, you can't even look at the sun and it's 93 million miles away, right? Much less could you approach the uncreated creator without danger to yourself. Not because God hates you. It's the opposite. He actually wants you to be in his presence. This is God's whole point, right? This is actually the story that began in Genesis 1. He, he dwelt with his creatures, but when they violated his commandment, they were exiled out of the gardens, and then they, they lost that, that kind of presence with the creator. And now God is taking one step toward restoring it, saying, hey, I'll dwell with you guys. This is the nation of Israel, right? So it's the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Uh, he dwells with them, and then he gives them the book of Leviticus and says, here's how you approach me safely. Um, follow these prescriptions and rules, and here's how you approach my presence safely. So the, 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 the rituals in Leviticus enable the priests and the non-priests to approach the tabernacle with safety. It's, in our world, it would be like sunscreen. Put this kind of sunscreen on. And then you can be in the presence of sun. Right. But like only for a little while. Right. Is all that actual yeah. stuff they had to do, did, did it actually make a difference? Yes. Or was it just here? No, it actually made a difference. And that's the stuff that's funny for us, particularly because Protestants, right? Because we don't like, we don't like physical things to make a real difference, right? But <laughs> they do. Um, so that's, that's um, yeah. There's a, no, that's a perfect question because... That's a big hindrance for a lot of people. Tell, tell why is it a hindrance for Baptist people? Uh, we talk about everything is symbolically. So baptism is a symbol, X, Y, Z is a symbol, and we're uncomfortable with physical things actually communicating something about God. So we're uncomfortable with physical things actually being a vehicle of God's presence. Um, for instance? Uh, the Lord's Supper, we'd say it's just reductively a symbol, as opposed to actually being a vehicle through which you encounter God's actual presence. And that, no, 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 Baptists, not all Protestants. In fact, most Protestants would not say it that way. Only Baptists speak it that way. With me? Yeah. With me? Okay. I'm a Baptist, but okay. Um, <laughs> Leviticus are the prescriptions and rules about how the, Israel, the nation of Israel can approach God safely. So, um, they have to be in a state because God is this uncreated creator. He's holy, meaning he's completely other. He requires those who approach him to be of that same quality. So that's where you get that refrain throughout Leviticus that says, be holy as I am holy. That's what that means. You have to um, become that same status, not identical because we can't have the holiness of God. Holy, I mean, God's holiness is completely different, distinct than ours, right? But you have to say, have that same attribute in order to approach God safely. In other words, um, if you want to be able to approach the sun, you need to have some like sun-like qualities, right? Or to say uh, a different analogy, like fire. If you want to approach fire safely, you can't you can't be made of dry wood. That's Elijah. You can't be made of dry wood, right? If you approach if you approach fire as dry wood, what's going to happen to you? You're toast. So you can't approach fire as dry wood. You need to approach it right. That's a state of question. Yeah. But, why would God? Why would God create something that couldn't be in His presence, absent some kind of 
or I mean, maybe at all, like you know, without without the intervention of a priest or whatever. Yeah. Or do you know what I mean like like why does it require this purification process? Yeah, yeah, it's precisely because of the rebellion in Genesis three. Because in Genesis one and two, he was with them. He was walking with them in the garden, and everything was fine. And it's after the rebellion that the state of death, that's what Paul says in Romans 5, after sin, death broke into the world. Uh, the other one, no bill, my good friend from college, this bill. Uh, we were roommates for years in college. Um, uh, so Paul said in Romans 5, uh, uh, after, after sin came into the world, death came into the world. So death is, creates the problem of mortality. In other words, cor- corruptibility. It, it, death came into the world and changed us from iron to dry wood. Iron can be in God's presence, right? But dry wood can't be. So when death came, sin came to the world, death came to the world, it, it, it turned us into corruptible creatures that couldn't approach God. Safe. that make sense? It, it does. So even even when someone is, is first born and has not, I don't know, like early on, right? Like before yeah. they had advanced to be corrupted or kind of whatever, like, yeah. that, still, that still requires the yeah, because they're born uh, into this kind of existence. Right. Yeah. Right. Post, post-fall. Post-fall with this kind, literally bodily speaking, they're born with this kind of body, the kind of body that can't inhabit the same space as God without it posing some sort of danger to you. It's where you get all these narratives in the Old Testament about people touching the ark and dying. Yeah. yeah. So the priest can approach the altars. Uh, yep. Are, so I haven't read a whole lot of Leviticus. Okay. Sorry, like fresh out on that. Um, are the laws that are talked about there, are they put in the framework of like a command, like yeah. everyone needs to abide by these, yeah. or is it more of an invitation for the few? Um, it depends. Uh, if you want to approach the tabernacle, it's a command. Yeah. Okay. If you don't want to approach the tabernacle, then yeah, the purity regulations don't matter because your purity regulations govern your capacity to approach the tabernacle. But yeah, if it's, but so in the sense though, then still, I mean, I, I want to combine those issues because God wants them to be in his presence, right? right? I mean, he, he wants them, he wants to inhabit the same space as them, right? So yeah, I've combined the command and invitation, right? But but yeah, he's inviting them into his presence, yeah. It's hard not to hear Elijah. Um, <laughs> I didn't notice. Yeah, it's fine. You're the only one. It's not my child, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> So this. Oh no, that didn't. I was like, oh, so uh, I don't care either. No. Um, so the so in, in in Leviticus there are a bunch of uh, rules about how to attain a certain status of purity. Purity is in our concept, world, our world kind of sometimes can be used in a negative sense, right? Like you can hear the word purity and it just has like a bad taste in our mouth, right? But the word purity and actually even here's the crazy part, even the word impurity do not have moral connotations in Leviticus. You can be in a state of impurity and actually be in a state of obedience. In fact, you can obey a commandment. Ready for this one? You can obey a commandment and become impure. Because there are two different kinds of impurity in, in the Old Testament. According to the Levitical system, there are two different kinds of impurity. There's one kind of impurity that happens just by virtue of organic bodily processes that we all have, and none of them are sinful. The other kind of impurity obtains when a person commits a sin. That kind of impurity is obviously in the moral in the moral world, right? But there's one kind of impurity, and it's the vast number of cases, there's one kind of impurity that obtains only by virtue of bodily processes. And it's not sinful. 
to be in that state of impurity. It's not simple. All it does is preclude you from approaching the tabernacle, but then I'll, it's a really easy solution. All you do is apply water to that area and wait till sundown. Then you're in a state of purity and you can approach the tabernacle. So here's some examples. Uh, and it's going to be awkward. I'll look this way. <laughs> no, uh, they're bodily processes, okay? So uh, seminal emission, uh, menstruation, childbirth, uh, sex between a married couple, uh, touching a corpse, all these things render a person impure, but not in a state of sin. Because this is the hardest part for us to understand. We hear impurity and we think sin. We think moral. Not all impurity is in that world. In fact, the vast majority of cases in Leviticus of, the, of, of impurity are the kinds of impurity that, re that result from bodily processes. So if a woman is menstruating, she's in a state of impurity. If a husband and a wife have sex, they're both in a state of impurity. If a woman gives birth, she's in a state of impurity. Um, and there are other cases, but I'll stop with those three before I move to the next one because it's kind of a different category. None of those are categories of sin. You're not sinful. You don't need forgiveness. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to offer a sacrifice. You don't need to do anything. You just, you're in a state of impurity while that uh, flow of liquid is occurring. So, so why make the distinction of that, like, that that is impure if there are bodily functions which were being human, like, being a human glorifies God, like, yeah, because impurity is, uh, because of the kinds of impurity they are, they are, um, when a woman is menstruating, obviously, she's losing blood. When a uh, guy is having a bodily flow, whether it's semen or blood, he's um, losing things that are equated with life. So semen and blood are equated with life in Leviticus. So, in fact, Leviticus 17.11, it says explicitly, uh, blood, blood is life. Um, and, and that's why there are all these blood prohibitions in the Old Testament. You don't, humans don't get to mess with blood because it's the, it's the vehicle of life. And life is the sole property of God who created it. Right? So God's the creator of life. God loves life. And, so in the, and God has made it such that blood is the vehicle of life. So humans don't get to mess with blood. So with those, and that's, what's, you know, that's one of the impurities, would those not be before the fall, and these would not, like, Eve or Adam, like, that there would not be impure then, or they wouldn't take place? Right, potentially. That's actually a live question of the yeah, kind of the okay. second century Judaism there. There's a text that, uh, called Jubilees, which is written in the second century. It's a Jewish text, not in English canon, but um, it actually does think the bodily mortality processes were occurring before the fall, um, but the assumption was that they, that had the humans simply eaten from the tree of life without oh. rebelling, they would have ceased. Um, so, are you with me so far? There are states of impurity that result from bodily processes that are not sinful. Um, and, and how you solve these is apply water and wait. Typically till sundown. Um, so, some, case, some impurity cases are stronger than others. So, um, I'll let you guess from it. But yeah, some, case, some are stronger than others. Um, how, how did the concept of impurity come about? Was this something that was like like divinely re like received? Like, oh, these these various things are, are impure, but they're not bad, like you're describing yeah, it. It's, it's one of those things that's just not explained, and it's just assumed. So it must, yeah. it's, at one level, yes, they're divinely revealed to be, it's these things that defile you, but the concept of defilement or impurity, which just seemed to have been understood because it seems to be whatever, they didn't have to explain it, right? 
So here's my best example. Here's my proof that uh, not all these cases of impurity are the result from sin. Um, if you touch a corpse, you're impure. Because you've touched death, right? The opposite of life. You've touched death. You've touched mortality itself, right? So if you touch a corpse, you are rendered impure. Cool? If you touch a corpse, you are rendered impure. Two of God's commands are that one, one, or one of them is you have to bury every corpse you see. You cannot leave corpses out. Because, why? You should speak the logic. Because corpses are, uh, they, they sh shed impurity. And so if they were just to be left out, they would defile the land itself. So it says you have to bury every corpse. You can't leave corpses unburied. Now you take that with a positive command where God says, you know, honor your father and your mother. Well, if your mom dies, you are obeying two commands by burying her. You're honoring her, right? That's the commandment, honor your, honor your father and mother. So by burying your mom, you are honoring your mom, and you are touching a corpse. Or, sorry, excuse me, you're burying a corpse. So you're obeying two commandments by burying one of your parents, right? Right? With me? And by burying that corpse, what happens to you? You're rendered impure. So you are rendered impure by obeying. Childbirth uh, renders a woman impure for a given amount of time. But that's not a sin. Childbirth's not a sin. And it's just because it's the loss of blood. You've lost blood out of your body. Um, and so it's easy to fix. All you do is you typically just wash. There are a couple of cases where you have to make a sacrifice, but even then it's not a sacrifice for pure, for your own forgiveness or anything. It's simply because, now stage two of the story, uh, impurity is such a strong force. You know, you think about it as a force. It's a force. It's a contagion. It, it defiles stuff. Impurity can spread. So if some impurity is so strong, actually the impurity of childbirth, that it can actually defile the altars. Now these little dots are defilements, contagions. But no problem. So here's the problem. Why is that a problem? Why is it bad to defile this space? It's God's space. Because God dwells there. God lives there. Don't mess up God's house. Um, God says, purify all this all the time. Um, or else, you know, I'll leave. Um, and he does, actually, eventually. He eventually leaves the temple, right? That happens in Ezekiel 10. God departs the temple because the people have become so disobedient that they've just totally defiled his space. So he leaves. It's Ezekiel 10. But that's ahead of ourselves. Impurity renders this space impure, but no problem. That's what the sacrifices are for. You come, you bring a sacrifice. This is an animal. I, the offerer, slit its throat. The priest procures its blood in a little basin, takes it in there, and sprinkles the blood on the altar, and cleanses the altar. Blood is ritual 409. Cleanses the space where God dwells. Cool? Was this a command from, from God, or was this something? Yeah, like Leviticus 1, verse 1. And when anyone commits this kind of sin, bring this kind of offering. And then he gives them really elaborate instructions on what they should do. It's a nine-step process. Yeah. Can you explain why, so blood being impure from humans, but blood from yeah, because this is a great question. Yeah, because it's blood exiting your body, and so it's you're you're losing the life force, and so you are 
It's like it, it's like the encroachment of death because you've left, you've lost a life force, right? Whereas here you're applying the life force, and so the, the life force is swallowing death. So one of this is great scholar of Leviticus named Jacob Milgram says this is one of the most important theological ideas in the whole Bible, is the fact that life overcomes death, and that God has provided life. In fact, he says in Leviticus 17, God says, I have given you the blood so that you can make atonement for yourselves on my altars. And so that's even one of the biggest parts. That's Leviticus 17, verse 10 and 11, somewhere in there. Because I have given you the blood so that you can put it on the altars for yourselves. And again, that's the thing. We think of, it's easy for us to think of sacrifices as things that they did to manipulate God. If I bring this, you're going to do this for me, right? Leviticus overturns that. That's not what's happening. Humans aren't manipulating God by bringing these sacrifices. God himself says, no, when you bring me that blood, it's, I, I, I gave you the animal. I gave you the blood so that you could then use it this way. So God overturns that idea when, in Leviticus 17. I have given you the blood so that you can make atonement for yourselves by spreading this blood on the altar. Also, don't eat blood because blood is the life. And Paul, let me talk about this, going back to one of the things you were saying earlier. What the Israelites were doing was so opposite of everyone around them in the ancient Near East. So it was, there was sacrifice, there was sacred space, defilement. But they were trying to appease the gods and trying to figure it out. And like this God is saying, this is what you do so that you can be with me. It was, yeah. it was very yeah. countercultural. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Nothing bad. Um, uh, so he gives them the sacrifices. Uh, that's how they can approach God and, and obtain forgiveness for the sins they commit. So whenever they become in a state of impurity through bodily processes, no problem. That vast majority of the time, they don't even have to offer sacrifice. Just wash and wait till sundown. So if you have sex with your wife at 4 p.m., take a bath, what most of us would do anyway, and then two hours later, you're clean. Bath? Uh, well, they would have to take a bath. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. There. <laughs> I, I didn't know we were going there. Ice bath, actually. Uh, no, um, they, they only had immersion pools. They don't have uh, running water going over their heads um, in the year 2000 BC. Um, yeah. Any other questions, Matt, or comments? So that by sundown, you're cleaning again. That's where we do the phrase washed and waiting. And once you're washed, you're just waiting until sundown. You're cleaning again. So that, all that's to say is Leviticus is all about the prescribed rituals and rules by which they can uh, obtain forgiveness and purity through the stuff that God himself has provided. So that's why even the stuff where you say, like, you have obtained forgiveness, like, it's, that, that, that can sound like to us, like, oh, man, like, they're, they're yeah, they're, they're, they're earning their forgiveness or something. No, like, God himself says, I gave you this stuff so that you can use it in this way. Um, so the, 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 the rituals in Leviticus are how they can maintain their purity, and when they don't, for obvious reasons, either through just normal bodily stuff that happens to everybody, or through the commission of sin, they have a means to obtain both purification and forgiveness that God himself has provided. Does that make sense? You're all with me? Any questions there? Question for you. How do you differentiate between what is a purity issue and what would be like a moral sin issue in Leviticus? So, yeah. for example, I touch a corpse, I'm right. pure, I haven't yeah. sinned. I murder the person. Yeah. 
and that's why I was touching right, the right, course. Right. So that yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. How do we, how do we Great question. More? This is why, this is the other reason I love Leviticus, is because God just, is so clear. God just, he, he tells you. He's like, no, you can't do that. So like, no, murder, murder is a sin. So this is, this is why, again, why I love Leviticus, is because it's so clear. He just says, here are the things you can't do. These, if you do these things, these are called sins. And if you do these things, that results in defilement, and it was because you sinned, not because you just accidentally touched a corpse. Now, in terms of the legal system, yeah, if someone's like, hey, I just found this corpse, well, you know, right, obviously at the human level, they have to, you know, do an investigation and a trial, just like we would. Uh, but in terms of, like, how do they know which is a sin, which one's bodily? God tells them. This stuff's bodily. This stuff's because you did it, and it wasn't just because you had a bodily reaction. Um, and so that's the stuff in Leviticus, mostly the stuff in Leviticus 12 through 15, 12, uh, Leviticus 18 and 20, and a few things in Leviticus 12 about the dietary system. What's the difference between like the blood of a bird or whatever versus a goat? Like, is it just the importance? Of the uh, it's uh, there's it a provision for uh, impoverished people. Okay. So if you can afford a bull, do a bull. If you can afford a goat, do a goat. If you can't afford that, do a pigeon. Okay. Yeah. So it's blood. Blood is blood. blood. Uh, it was for the sake of uh, if you could afford it. Mary brought pigeons because they were impoverished. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I know this points to all of it. To yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, we'll get there. Okay. But go ahead. No, Ask I your question. Song, Did you have a question? You go ahead. No, I'm just having. I just. Um, I think in Old Testament, I think of like foreshadowing, like you know, to to Jesus. I'm like, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it obviously matters. Yeah, it does. Obviously. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. I just don't want to be ignorant in my question. No, no, no. That's not an ignorant question at all, yeah, because that's obviously Jesus is the reason for the season, okay. as it were. Oh, yeah. So, no, it, it will, it's, uh, it, we'll, we'll get there. Um, with me so far? Yeah. Any questions? We're still talking about law and everything else, too, right? Um, and on the, the, point, and the important part here is to say that, that obedience to these laws is not, they're not earning their salvation. God's, God's already saved them, right? God already rescued them from Egypt. They were in slavery. God already rescued them. In fact, it's the word rescue slash save. It's the same word that we use in the New Testament. God's already saved them. He took them out of bondage, and he didn't say, hey, do a couple dances, and then I'll come down and live in the tabernacle. He said, no, just build that tent, and I'll come live down there. So God already saved them, and then God said, build me a tent, and I'll come down there. Then, actually, the awesome part about it is it's the opposite. They didn't, like, earn it and do a bunch of awesome stuff so that he would come dwell there. They kept doing a bunch of terrible stuff. That's when they, that's precisely when he says build the tabernacle and they go to the, the golden calf incident where they make an idol and worship the false god, right? So it's like the opposite. They're, like the whole book of Exodus is revealing to them like, nothing about this is because you guys are awesome. <laughs> like, I'm doing this because I loved you and I rescued you. So that's why I say like obedience to the Leviticus or Deuteronomy and stuff does not collapse to legalism where they're earning their salvation precisely because the whole message of basically Exodus onward is uh, I chose you guys, I rescued you, I did it in spite of you guys, y'all have been disobedient the whole way through the wilderness, I told you to build a tabernacle, and then while you were building it, you did something really terrible, and I'm still going to live with you guys, because I said I would. So, when he then dwells in the tabernacle, he says, okay, and here's, here's the other, this is, this is the weirdest part of the world, why, how the Old Testament got labeled as like this legalistic thing, this, this is why and it's so weird to me, because Leviticus just starts with now, when you commit this kind of sin, bring this kind of offering. 
And when you commit this kind of sin, bring this kind of offering. And when you commit this kind of sin, bring this kind of offering. It's just the sinfulness of the people is presumed. The commission of transgression is an assumed aspect of the covenantal relationship. God's not surprised by their sin. Right? He rescued them. He knows them. They were disobedient the entire way toward the promised land. He's not surprised by their sin. Um, and it's just the commission of transgression. This is the line I say over and over in my class. The commission of transgression is an assumed aspect of the covenantal relationship. Not surprised by it. And, and in fact, not only is he not surprised by it, the whole book of Leviticus is about how when you commit this kind, here's the thing I've given you so that you can make up for it. So that you can approach me. Still still approach me safely. This is why I say Leviticus is the sleeper in the canon. It's the best book that you've ever read. Um, okay. Questions through there? Great. So you know, the, the question you should be asking is, well, then what could ever go wrong? Right? Sounds like a pretty good deal. Right? Um, what could go wrong is there is such a thing as breaking the covenant. So again, the commission transgression, assumed aspect, is an assumed aspect of the covenant religion, but there are some transgressions that break the covenant. And that is uh, some of the stuff delineated in Leviticus 18, but in particular, what gets singled out in Deuteronomy and Leviticus is worshiping other deities. So worshiping the gods of the other nations. So Yahweh is the creator, he's the only one that deserves worship. All the other nations worship the things that they call gods, and God says, don't worship those things. Um, they belong to the, those nations are doing their own thing. You don't, you don't worship those gods. You belong to me. I'm Yahweh. I'm the creator. You belong to me. Don't mess with it. But the whole, kind of the rest of the story in the Old Testament is, is Israel's worship of those other deities. In, in worshiping those other deities, they commit, here's the problem, they commit a transgression for which there is no sacrificial offering. That's the issue. They commit a transgression for which there is no sacrificial provision. Because you've saw the branch off that you're sitting on. If you've devoted yourself to another god, you've devoted yourself to a deity who doesn't accept these offerings. Because when you make these offerings, you're offering them to Yahweh, right? The creator, the creator God. So when you devote yourself to Baal, you've devoted yourself to a deity who doesn't give a crap about you. You've devoted yourself to a deity who doesn't forgive your sins. You've devoted yourself to a deity who doesn't accept these offerings because why? He's not living there. What does it mean to break that covenant relationship? It means, this is a great, great question, um, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 detail precisely what happens to Israel when they commit this. It says, now, if, if, we, if, you, if you keep my, you know, uh, covenantal stipulations, that's what the law is, by the way, just the stipulations of the covenantal agreement. If you keep these laws, like, all these things are fine. And, again, remember, keeping this law doesn't mean sinless obedience. Because keeping the law, half of keeping the law is making the sacrifices for when you haven't kept the law. Right? Like, like offering the right sacrifice is keeping the law. So keeping the law means making the sacrifices for when you've sinned. So law-keeping in the Old Testament isn't sinless obedience. Law-keeping in the Old Testament is doing the things God told you to for even when you've committed sin, so that 
God forgives you and God stays here and you can be in his presence and all that sort of stuff and you can approach God safely. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, third book, fifth book of the Bible, uh, detail what happens to Israel when they do that transgression, they worship other gods. And it's that God leaves the temple, God departs the temple, and consequently doesn't accept their sacrifices anymore. It says explicitly in Leviticus 26, 31, when you break this covenant, worship other gods, all that sort of stuff, then I will make this place empty. Um. I'll empty it of my presence. And he says explicitly, I'll stop smelling your soothing aromas, which is a roundabout way of saying I'll stop smelling the sacrifices that you offer. Okay, so in that, right, all the other deities, yeah. They did not accept the offerings. They weren't there. So when God departs, what then would be the separation between God's chosen people and all the other deities? Because both are no longer accepting an offering, anything. Yeah, no that's the problem. Is now that's the that's the plight of the Old Testament. Is that the people of Israel, once they commit that transgression and worship those other deities, God says, if you want to devote yourself to those deities, okay, devote yourself to those deities. It's, they'll be in charge of you now. So he says, like, I'll hand you over to the nations. That's being handed over to the nations. So you'll go into exile into the nations where those gods rule. Those gods, you know, gods rule. So that you'll be subject to those nations and consequently subject to the deities who rule those nations. Right, so in Ezekiel, when he departs. Yeah, Ezekiel right? 10, God departs the temple. And still in that, right, there's still prophets. There's still, yeah, so yeah. God's still active. Oh, yeah, precisely. Uh, say the last part again. So because God's active, right? God yeah. wasn't like actively giving prophecy to his followers. Like the other nations weren't, you know, there wasn't really. Yeah. That, a covenant relationship. Yeah, would that be the difference? Is that like, there's still, like God's still active in Israel? Yes. Okay. They're still in a, interestingly, in a weird twist, they're still in a covenantal relationship with God because the, what, what these texts, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, what those texts are about are called the covenant curses. So the, the curses that fall upon Israel for when they break the covenant. So these texts delineate what's called the covenant curses. The curses that fall upon Israel for when they break the covenant. Not for when they commit a transgression, right? Because when they commit a transgression, they can, they can take care of that. I'm talking about for when they break the covenant. They devote themselves unrepentantly to other deities. And again, it's not like a one-time thing. It's not like one person in the nation... Worships Baal, so now the whole nation's toast or something. It's like individuals did, and then the kings did, like Solomon worshipped other, other gods. And then because they all the people are following the example of the kings, all the people start to worship other gods. It's not even like then that God does it immediately. He sent, That's what the prophets are for. God sends the prophets and says, turn back now, guys. Like, stop doing what you're doing. Come back to fidelity to our God. We still have time. And then eventually, God's like, okay, prophets, change your tune. Now just tell them that they haven't repented, so now the covenant curses are coming. And so then, once the covenant curses come, it's a matter of waiting until the promised covenant restoration comes. So this is the other part of your question. God has promised that after they experience the covenant curses, he will restore the covenant. And it's a surety. It's a promise. God says Deuteronomy 30, and it's actually, it's the end of Leviticus 26, and it's Deuteronomy 30, covenant restoration passage, and God promises, I promise I'll restore the covenant. When you're in exile, and things are going terrible, 
then I'll make my name known and I'll, I'll rescue you again, just like I rescued you in Egypt. So just like I'm going to send you to Babylon for exile, I'm going to rescue you from Babylon just like I rescued you from Egypt. That's, really what it means. That's why, if you've heard the language, it's like a new exodus. Jesus is, oh, excuse me, yeah, I don't want to Jesus performs the new exodus, but uh, yeah, the new exodus, the covenant restoration is a, is a, is a new exodus. Another redemption from slavery and captivity. Um, part of the covenant restoration promises are that, here's, we go back to our topic, uh, when I restore you and you come back into the covenant relationship with me, then I won't just circumcise, remember Israel had their genitalia circumcised, the men, the men did, they had to, the men had to be circumcised on the eighth day, he says, I won't just have your uh, uh, genitalia circumcised. I will circumcise your hearts so that your hearts will be fully devoted to me. And then, and here's the thing where we all, this is where now to go back to our topic. Remember, because when we talk about the law and obedience, the continuing life of the law, the covenant restoration passages say, then finally you'll obey my commandments. In fact, the covenant promise, the promise of restoration, the new exodus is that at, at the restoration, I'll, 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 I'll transform your hearts to be the kinds of hearts that are actually devoted to me so that you then love me with your whole heart and obey my commandments. Is that the equivalent of a judge's cycle? Yeah. Judge's cycle is when they just it's never obey, never obey, right? And they keep breaking in, they keep repenting, and then God keeps sending them. So covenant restoration is that I'll transform your heart so that it's fully devoted to me, so that you actually obey the commandments finally. Right? Uh, flash forward, Jesus. Uh, so people are sent into exile. They break the, Israel breaks the covenant. They go into exile. go to Babylon. Babylon gets taken over uh, by Persia. After Persia, it's Greece. After Greece, it's Rome. So Israel is just in a state of captivity for generations and generations. Right? Jesus performs his ministry during Israel's captivity to Rome. And Jesus is the one who performs the second exodus. He performs the redemption of God's people. This is why Matthew opens with, he will be the one who will save his people from their sins. Uh, he will be the one who will redeem Jerusalem. He will be the one who will redeem Israel. All sort of stuff, right? So Jesus is the one who redeems his people by, interestingly, think about the, think about the content of the covenant curses. What is, what's the content of the covenant curses? Being handed over to the nations, and the nations do with you what they will. So the, the content of the covenant curses is that the people of Israel get handed over to the nations, and the nations just do whatever they want to do. That's what happens to Jesus. He says, we're going to Jerusalem, guys, and they're not going to treat me nicely. They're going to hand me over to the nations, and the nations will put me to death. So Jesus takes the full weight of the covenant curses onto himself and by enduring them he exhausts them brings them to an end that's why he says in the garden before his cross he says Lord Father if this cup won't pass unless I drink it then you will be done in other words he's, he's metaphorizing the content of the covenant curses as like a cup he's got to drink but if he drinks it they're all gone so he's handed over to the nations, endures the content of the covenant curses to their utmost, and in so enduring them, he exhausts them, and thereby covenant restoration is fulfilled. So this is where you get the language in the Bible, the New Testament, 
that Jesus is the one who brings the new covenant, or in other words, the renewed covenant. The covenant restoration happens through Christ. Then, remember in the covenant restoration, what's one of the things that God promises he'll do? Circumcise their heart, transform their heart so that they can appear. Uh, that's what all the apostles says has happened through the gift of the Spirit. So the gift of the Spirit has, in Romans 2, 28 and 9, Romans 2, 28 through 9, he says, you have had the circumcision of the heart through the Spirit. It's now not a knife on only half of the human race, it's the Spirit on the heart, and of course, intrinsic, implicitly, it's available to everyone, not just men. Obviously, uh, in that context, cultural context, women won't be circumcised. Um, but through the gift of the Spirit, everyone's got the circumcision of the heart. And so that's why Paul is able to speak positively, often, about obedience to God's commands. So now to tie it back into our main topic, right? Uh, Paul says that, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, you want to be a reader for me? 1 Corinthians 7. <clears throat> I brought a Bible, I think. There it is. 1 Corinthians 7, I think it's verse 21 or so. I'll look, though. I kind of forgot. Let me, let me look, because I don't want to read the random verse. Um, That's the best part. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7. Eighteen and nineteen. Was anyone called after he had been circumcised? He should not try to undo his circumcision. Was anyone called who is uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Instead, keeping God's commandments is what counts. Keeping God's commandments is what counts. Notice what he says. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. It's just the word foreskin. He goes, if you have your circum, if you've been circumcised. Great. Who cares? If you've got your foreskin, great. Who cares? That's not the stuff that counts right now. Here's what counts. Keeping God's commands. And the implicit part is, is because, as I said already in Romans 2, 28, 29, your heart has been circumcised by the gift of the Spirit. And it's the Spirit that is God's own presence. God's own presence that dwelt here that dwelt here. I want y'all to be making the temple connection now. God's presence that dwelt here has now circumcised your heart and dwells in you bodily. Circumcision of the heart slash the transformation of the human does a lot of things. It's the basis upon which Paul can say, you're the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians 6, don't you guys know you're the temple of God? 1 Corinthians 3. Or Romans 5, the very beginning of Romans 5, when he says, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God, and we have access into this grace in which we stand. The word access in Romans 5 is the noun form of the verb to approach. The verb to approach is the verb used in Leviticus exclusively to refer to what happens when you approach the temple or the tabernacle. 
To Leviticus, you bring a sacrifice so that you can approach God's face. Right? You bring a sacrifice so that you can approach God's face where God dwells. Paul is using that same word, approach, to be used the noun form. In Greek, it's the noun form is the word access. He says, we now have that access. So the, the thing that they had to do in the past to approach the temple through sacrifices, Paul says, we now have that through the Spirit that indwells you. As God's presence dwelt here, so now God's Spirit dwells in you bodily, making constituting you as a temple of the living God. But now think about it. As the temple of the living God, what is necessary of you? What was necessary of this space? Purity. This is why Paul can use purity language as often as he does. Paul, you, in case you don't know this, Paul uses purity language often. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, and right, it's like literally every letter. Uh, be holy, be sanctified. All the language of sanctification, holiness, purity, that all just comes straight a little bit for the, the status you need to be in, to be in God's presence. But of course, as always, the logic is reversed. God already has constituted you as a temple. God already dwells in you. And so now what's incumbent upon you as one in whom God temple dwells is to be in that state of purity, which entails, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, we just read, keeping God's commands. Now, here's where the beauty of all that Leviticus stuff comes to bear. The commission of transgression... You, as a Christian, the commission of transgression doesn't mean you're out of the covenant or you're toast. It didn't mean it then, and it doesn't mean it now. It didn't mean it then. Why didn't it mean it then? Because you had a, you had a sacrifice to offer. And who, who took the sacrifice? Obviously, you brought it right here, but you couldn't go any farther because you weren't a priest. So who takes the sacrifice? What is Christ for us? High priest who always intercedes for us in the right hand of God. So here you had a high priest. Remember the high priest could go into this space how often? Remember this? He could go in there once per, once per year. For how long? Like 30 seconds. He couldn't even handle it. Now you have Christ as a high priest in the presence of God constantly. Constantly interceding for you. So that you can get you get Paul's language of insisting upon obedience without collapsing to your earning it or legalism or whatever, because he can insist upon obedience as the thing that you need to do because you've been rescued by God and 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 he's made you into a temple of himself. And yet also you don't need to fear that an act of transgression removes you from God's covenantal grace because, just like then, so now, we have a high priest that we can confess to and pray to. And Paul assures us, is always interceding for us. What about the, the covenantal sin, the idolatry? Right. Idolatry. How do we deal with that? Uh, Paul does warn that that's something you ought not do. So in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, flee from idolatry. Um, and he doesn't say anything else besides that. He just says, 
Don't do it. Flee from it. And 1 John says, it closes with that. My children, don't commit idolatry. So if we were to translate that, we don't have like, a, like neighboring deities that we all devote ourselves to. Um, it would be only devote yourself to our God. Don't devote yourself to other things. And similarly, just like then, it's not like a commission of transgression removes you from the covenant. The, 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 the way they broke the covenant was by the whole people of God going astray over time, and they sent prophets. So similarly, God, um, that's what the community of believers is for, to call you back to you know fidelity, and that's what um, the Spirit is for, to convict you of sin, all that sort of stuff. But he has the same same mechanisms in place, but they're not even stronger, you know. Um, and the simple warning in the New Testament is just, yeah, flee from idolatry. What about Levitical law in general? What, what happens if it's abolished? Post- yeah, Christ? great question. So now we've come to the issue about this. We didn't even talk about sex. Uh, uh, I can give you the short version, uh, which I probably shouldn't, but um, uh, Leviticus 18. Do you even want me to do it now? Yes. We're at this point, okay. Sex. <laughs> Leviticus 18, uh, uh, Leviticus 18 prohibits um, incest, bestiality, and same-sex behavior. Um, the word in, I'm now, because I've used up all my time, I'm, I'm going fast. But, you know. um, if I go fast, interrupt me, I'm happy to talk as long as you want after. Uh, but in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18 uh, prohibits bestiality, incest, and uh, same-sex behavior. Um, and the term, you'll just have to trust me, but you can look it up, uh, the, the, unless you all, um, yeah, you can, um, you can look it up very easily. Um, in Leviticus 18, the term that, uh, in Greek that's used, um, is a man shall not lie with a man. That's the, in, in Greek, the phrase, and that's the phrase Paul uses in first Corinthians, in, uh, first Corinthians 6 and in Romans 1 to exhort the people not to do that thing. So in other words, Paul seems to think that the prohibitions of Leviticus 18 are still operative. In other words, the things that Leviticus 18 prohibits, Paul, I think, Paul also prohibits. Um, and you get that in Romans 1, where he says, man lying with men, he uses the two Greek terms that are derived actually exclusively from Leviticus 18. Um, and, um, and in 1 Corinthians 6, man lying with men. Uh, in Romans 1, he extends it to in other words, it's a common legal principle, um, right? If it, it precluded it between men and men, he, Paul extended the legal principle to also preclude it from women. Um, now, the logic here is that, no, I don't think the law is abolished. Um, in Acts 15, so when we go to Acts 15, is this an eraser? No. Oh, here it is. Sorry. <laughs> I kept looking for it. Um, it is quite small. This is its own challenge. Um, in um, in well, in the Gospels, uh, I'll say this now. Uh, as remember, I opened up controversially, right? That I said I don't think you should label Judaism legalistically. Why? Why should Judaism not be labeled as legalistic? Because he gave them the law and said obey this. Right? It would be weird if then. They started obeying the law, and you were like, legalism, you're like, well, they're just doing what God told me to do. But God gave us this law and says, do it. So if, you know, it'd be weird if I'm labeled as legalistic by them doing the thing God told me to do. But 
Um, you, the same logic would mean that believing in Christ is useless. Because God also tells you to believe in Christ. And you're doing it because God told you to. So now because you've done it, you're legalistic. That's weird logic. Um, so uh, also, they weren't earning their salvation. They were already rescued. They were already the covenantal people. Right? So now, remember, even go one step further. I even said that the Pharisees aren't legalistic. I'm going to defend that. Again. Um, it's Jesus' critique of the Pharisees is the opposite. He doesn't critique them of legalism. He critiques them of not obeying the law. He says, you hypocrites, you guys do X, Y, Z. But in, in raising up all these traditions, you actually hinder yourselves from doing the law. He says, here's what you guys, you guys consider your experts, yourselves experts in law? Here's what your experts at, setting aside God's commandment. It's Mark 7. So it's interestingly, it's interesting, Jesus' critique of the Pharisees is the opposite of legalism. It's not you guys are doing the law so much, it's y'all aren't even doing it. Right, that's Mark 7. And in fact, Matthew 23 Jesus tells his disciples to do everything the Pharisees tell them to do. This is Matthew 23. Ready, Matthew 23? If you're mad at me, don't be. Because I'm just uh, reading the Bible. Uh, okay. Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds, to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, everything that they tell you to do, do it and observe it. But don't do according to their deeds, for they say things, but then don't do them. So, his critique of the Pharisees is not that they overdo the law, it's that they actually don't do it. He tells his disciples to do everything the Pharisees teach. But do, do it differently, because they actually don't do it. <laughs> um, so in that, uh, right, the law is used for purification yeah. to meet with the Lord, right? For yep. God. Perfect. And in that 400 years of silence, when there was no interaction, was Levitical law just kind of... Yeah, they were in exile. Uh, this is where you get the book of Daniel, right? The book yeah. of Dan Daniel's in exile in Babylon. This is why he's uh, refusing the king's food, is because he doesn't want to eat impure food. So this week, a lot of this, a lot of the literature of that time, like the book of Daniel, right, because he's in exile in Babylon, is about how do we stay faithful when all the things that we typically do to exhibit our fidelity are not available to us. Um, well, da da Daniel's when they're in exile, right? Yeah, so uh, specifically when, like, hey, if we're not hearing from like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, oh, yeah. They doesn't be faithful because they're, they're, you know, there's still that interaction. Yeah, yeah. Before he was there was that cease. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, still... Yeah, they still did it because it was, it was just, it was... Is like, a cultural norm then? Yeah, well, and they would even still say, yeah, this is the, this is the thing we do because this is, God has set us apart, and these, these are the laws that set us apart. Okay. So we're the people of God, even though we're in exile, so we'll be faithful to this to the extent that we can. They, and they knew that they couldn't be faithful to it totally because if they're in exile, they're not even, they don't even have the temple, right? So they can't be faithful to the sacrificial system. They don't have it. They can't be faithful to the dietary system because they're living in Babylon and they can't farm their own food, right? So in that time, was that performed out of obligation? It was performed, out, it was done out of, yeah, the sense of fidelity to God. We're still the people of God, so we're still going to do what he tells to the best that we can, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. In Leviticus, yeah. it said, I mean, there's any number of sins for which, like, the penalty is death. Yeah. And how does that square with sacrifices that are made to bring people back as opposed to 
you've done X, Y, or Z, so penalty is a stoning. Right. And translating that into the New Testament for like, those things aren't where you're like making a sacrifice to come back to the Lord, but this is like, you're separated out in law. Yeah. So um, what, what's your... Yeah, Paul, Paul actually brings up an issue like this in 1 Corinthians 5, um, and, and it's the same logic without the same sort of precise legal result, where he recognizes there's no, so for, for in 1 Corinthians 5, um, one of the uh, Gentile, uh, non-Israelite, Gentile and non-Israelite, uh, a Gentile is sleeping with his dad's wife. So it sounds like he's sleeping with his mother-in-law, it sounds like. Um, and Paul is flabbergasted. He says, this is, this is terrible. And, and he uses the precise Greek language that comes out of Leviticus 18. Um, so Leviticus 18 prohibits that. You can't sleep with your mom's wife or your dad's wife. Um, and Paul hears that this is happening in the Corinthian course congregation and says, uh, he's, this guy isn't even repenting. And so he says, um, he says, remove him from the community. Um, now, that's the important part, though. It, <clears throat> the inclusive part seems to be that had he repented and just stopped doing the thing um, and repented of it, then that would have been sufficient for Paul. Because um, he says so. He goes, this guy didn't even repent. Um, so it looks like instead of, they're not, like in, in the New Testament, Paul doesn't want, if, if you commit a sin for which there's a death penalty in the, in the Old Testament, Paul doesn't exhort his Gentile congregants to execute each other. He just says, um, because actually here's the interesting part, this is what, because this is what you've already done. Your baptism was your death with the Messiah. So Paul says, you're supposed to die every day. So repentance is like a mini-death every time. Repentance is like a mini-death to yourself. So repentance is sufficient in other words. Does that answer your question? So, in other words, the legal, the legal case, there's a few ways to answer it. In Leviticus 18, there's certain things that you, if you do death penalty. In Paul, Paul still in the, Paul's letters, he still prohibits those things, but doesn't require the death penalty, instead requires uh, repentance. And if repentance is not exacted, at least from the example in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, then remove the person from the community. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 18. Uh, it, address the person. And if he doesn't repent, dress him again. If he doesn't repent, dress him again. And then if he doesn't repent, then remove him from the community. So, I want I wanted to hear you talk more. So, like, we live, it's Pride Month, right? And um, all the issues that we're facing, we have to think about them critically. So, I hear you saying is, like, from the law to the gospel, Paul's affirmation of it, Christ's affirmation of it. The things that we see that we grew up in that are somewhat normative as far as being like sex is intended uh, to represent um, Christ in the church, yeah. male and female, all this other stuff. How do we think about people um, that say, I'm, I, I follow Christ right. and I affirm LGBTQ thinking? Like, like we can't go to them and say, oh, by the way, the Bible says, yeah, this, because they're saying they're looking at the same Bible and saying, right. I read this and I say that like everyone's in type thing. Right. And so how how do we even think about that critically before even like dealing with them like practically? Right. That makes sense. Like yeah. some people come to the same text and they're saying, 
yeah, I read this, I read Romans 1, sure. and whatever it is, I read 1 yeah. Corinthians 6. And uh, yeah, interpretation is a public, uh, in, so uh, Christian faith is a public, it's a faith of, um, resulting from a public event, the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah. As a public event, it is uh, scrutinizable by public, uh, in other words, it's public truth, in other words, which means it's, you can argue about it. Um, because it's a, an event that is uh, um, uh, witnessed and consequently interpretable, um, it is consequently subject to uh, the, the, the kinds of, um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's subject to our own like, sort of intellectual you know, uh, wrestling. Um, that sort of uh, lens gets then applied to these kinds of texts where the text itself is not self-interpreting. No text is self-interpreting. Um, uh, all texts are just being interpreted. When, when you read a text, you are interpreting it whether you know it or not. You're implicitly interpreting it. Um, so um, every, every text is, is being investigated. Um, and so similarly when it comes to this issue then, the point is, is that yeah, I, I, there's a, a good number of um, uh, Protestant, worth saying that, uh, Protestant Christians um, who have come to different conclusions about some of these texts, and uh, so the first thing to do is you have to agree on the um, rules of engagement, as it were. So if one Protestant group just thinks, no, I, you know, the Bible, what the Bible says. Um, is uh, unimportant to me. Well, then you can't have an engagement on it because it doesn't matter what, how you interpret the text. They, they, they would be happy to concede. Okay, yeah, that's fine. I don't care, right? Um, and um, believe it or not, those are actually the waters I swim in. Not me personally, actually. I mean, the crowds I swim in. It's typically, I'm typically engaging people who just are indifferent to the Bible and just kind of want to interpret it on historical grounds and then don't care about it, sort of binding authority. Um, so that's so all, you have to agree on the eight rules of engagement. So if the person already just thinks like yeah the, the biblical text isn't binding, then you're just not the conversation is not it's you know not going to get the ground one. Um, if they agree that it's binding, then you have an interpretation. You have a public debate or engagement about 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 the meaning of those texts, and um, in the same way that. We all communicate by shared assumptions, um, and we all come to the best approximation of what I must mean based on what I've said. That's how we also interpret ancient texts. So, for example, here's a good example. If I said the um, memorial will be held on September the 11th at 7 p.m., what do you think I'm saying? The 9-11 memorial. Yeah, we're going to have a memorial event commemorating, you know, the event and everything else. Um, why did you think that? Because you said September 11th. Yeah. Yeah, curveball. I said that in the year 2000. I don't know what it's for. Yeah, it couldn't. It's interesting. The one thing you all thought it meant, commemorating 9-11 or whatever, could not have meant that in the year 2000. Because our acts of communication are conditioned by our shared cultural assumptions. We all live in the same culture. We've been brought up in the same culture. Uh, I'm just making assumptions now, but let's assume we all live in the same culture um, because our assumptions about how life works and how communication occurs 
um, our shared assumptions about culture shape what we assume we mean when we say X, Y, Z. So the 9-11 example, that's what probably lots of you thought I meant, something about symptom remembering. Mm -hmm. But that's because we're living in a culture drastically shaped by the events of 2001. If I had said that in the year 2000, it couldn't have meant that because the culture hadn't been shaped by that event yet. In other words, events shape culture, culture, our vocabulary is shaped by our shared cultural assumptions, and you are always interpreting my words, um, and your interpretation of my words is based on your best approximation of what my words must mean on our shared assumptions of how language works. So if I said, she passed the bar, what did I Yep. <laughs> so I can probably sometimes. Yeah. These are all just playing language games. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So she passed. What is that? Okay. So she passed the bar. Means passed the bar again. What else could it be? She used the U-turn. She used the U-turn because she passed the drinking establishment. Yeah. yeah. She passed the drinking establishment. So it's because bar has seven at least known meanings in our language. CrossFit. So, Colt, oh nope, stop it. All right, so I'm glad you said it, you nerd. Uh, glad you said it. Because uh, that's three, it's three different interpretations of the same sentence, depending on it, and what you, the, 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 the context of the sentence shapes the significance of the words. All of that's to say, the same logic <coughs> governs ancient communication. So that when we're reading an ancient text, in an ancient text, um, we have to, we at our stage of human history have to do a lot of really hard work to understand the historical culture of that time so that we know what those words would have signified to a reader or a hearer. So that when Paul says, hey, I don't permit a man to lie with another man, you're like, okay, well, what could he mean there, right? Does he mean you say, okay, sleep in the same sleeping bag or whatever, right? Um, when you look at it, you're like, well, this, this combination of Greek words, actually, Paul, as far as we know, there's no other Greek text that even uses that word. Paul very well may have made the word up. And it's based on a combination of words that comes straight out of Leviticus 18. And so in a context where he's alluding to Leviticus, and then the same context uses those words, doesn't it make sense that he would be alluding to Leviticus 18 and the thing that's prohibited there? That's sort of how the interpretation game goes, right? Um, someone who doesn't share those assumptions would come to a different interpretation. They would say, no, that word just means sort of uh, a, a temple prostitute. So that's, that's a common interpretation now for those who don't hold the traditional view. They say, no, Paul's not talking about same-sex behavior. Generally, he's talking about just prostitution. So he's forbidding prostitution. Um, so then, now what this other person has done is he, he or she has uh, provided an interpretation that you now have to weigh against the context. Just like we did, right? When I said pass the bar, well, assuming like there's clearly an assumed context that would help you interpret that, right? So if if, we're, if I if I've made plans with all of you to go meet you that night, right? And then I say, oh, she passed the bar. Well, then you would know I you know is the one about the drinking establishment, right? If we were talking about whatever this person took the exam and they say, hey, she passed the bar, everyone knows what I mean, right? So you have to you have to in other words you have to locate the context that conditions the meaning of the words. And in the case of uh, arsenikoitai, which is the Greek word for men, lie with men, 
Um, the surrounding context of Paul's words often derive from uh, things that are also prohibited in Leviticus. And in Leviticus 18, it's the same Greek words that um, Paul uses to prohibit uh, same-sex uh, behavior between men. Uh, deduction, he's alluding to Leviticus 18 and the thing that's prohibited there. Where does the interpretation of the temple prostitutes like come from? Like where does that interpretation? Uh, yeah. Where does that? Where does that? Because that in one Corinthians six and eight, Paul does in fact. Notice how he's saying that first one. It's very British. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't hate on Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I was, all, everybody in the UK freaked out when everyone made fun of Trump for that because you're like, oh, that's just how he's saying. Um, so uh, it's just, yeah, UK had it. Um, so they say one Corinthians. Um, for good reason, but I won't tell you because my wife will make fun of me. Um, she hates me. Okay. Uh, your question was First Corinthians six and eight. Um, he does forbid temple prostitution with the Greek word pornos. Okay. I can hear another word we get out of that. Um, uh, or porne, because it's a, a woman. So he says, don't stop visiting porne. Stop visiting prostitutes. Um, if you join yourself with a prostitute, don't you know you're already joined with Christ? And if you join with that prostitute, then you're like coupling Christ and that prostitute. Don't do that. Um, so because in First Corinthians six and eight, he's talked about prostitution. The, um, but he's using different words. Using different words. Yeah. Um, so using different words, um, and and yeah, it's just it's Paul's a uh, Paul's a Jew who's a Pharisee who's trained in the law. Right. I mean, what what would he be appealing to? Um, what is his context? Like, what's what his, his context? And 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 that, that that's that's the other reason I think it's just like Paul's Paul's the, the ethic that Paul grew up with is the ethic of Leviticus. Leviticus was Paul's ethical background, and so when he says a term that comes from Leviticus, it sounds like he's quoting Leviticus. Right? So I, I I'm, here's what I'm struggling with. I, I don't know. He's an attorney. I was like, well, no, I, I uh, this, this asking really just, good questions. I'm also a, a I'm just a seeker, man. Um, I you know I think. Uh, what I struggle with is how do how do I uh, how do I interpret Leviticus like today? Yeah. You know what I mean, because you, your point's a great one, right? We're we're all in a certain context. We yeah. all understand things a certain way because we're in that context. As did folks in Leviticus and post Leviticus, like yeah. was Christ like this massive event that right. changed everything? So right. it didn't abolish the Levitical right. law, but like certainly portions. Like, you're not killing animals anymore right. and spreading the blood and stuff. So right. in this. In, Similarly, like like today, yeah. if you take Leviticus and then Christ and then us, right? Like we're all in a different context, and so it, historically, I like the way you mapped it out. It's really helpful to understand. Like it, it, it ties everything together very nicely, but um, but beyond the historical significance of it, um, we, we obviously can't read it and go, "Oh yeah, let's do these things," right? Yeah. It's like that's not. So how do we how do we implement something practical from from Leviticus, or how do we think about it? Yeah, thanks. That is a really, really good question. Um, Acts 15 um, is the text um, that I think shapes this uh, really, really well for us. Um, in the book of Acts, the first uh, eight or so chapters, uh, the Jewish disciples of Jesus are carrying the message about Jesus out to the other Jews, right? Uh, because Israel has been in this state of like covenant flights, they need the covenant restoration. 
now Jesus' Jewish disciples had just watched Jesus ascend into heaven. So now that Jesus is at God's right hand, uh, his Father's right hand, um, you know, interceding for us, acting as our priests, everything. And they are, the, these Jewish disciples are taking this message about Jesus, about the covenant restoration that he performed to other Jews of the area. And then eventually that message spreads even to the non-Jews. This message about Jesus spreads even to the non-Jews. That, that happens first in Acts, uh, some isolated incidents, but really takes off in Acts 10. Such that in, in Acts 10, Peter, a Jewish disciple, eats with some Gentiles, and some Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter's like, I can't believe this. The Holy Spirit fell even on the Gentiles. That's what it says like over and over again, right? And then this news spreads to the Jerusalem council, and they're like, oh, man, I can't believe you ate with Gentiles. That's weird. But it sounds like that's because God's including them too. So that's good news. We don't want to mess with what God's doing. God's including the nations now. Like, that's good news. Um, so then they literally convene in order to have a count. And, and then, so now nations are being included. And then some Jews uh, go around to these Gentile communities who've begun to believe. These Jews go around and say, hey, unless you guys are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you can't, you can't get hard. And that's where Paul says, no, 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 that, that misses it, actually, because the nations belong as nations. God promised to bless the nations. And so if these Gentiles get circumcised, that's them becoming Jews. So for a Gentile to get circumcised is for him to, uh, this is why ethnicity was going to be one of the issues we talked about, for, the, for a Gentile to get circumcised is for a Gentile to Judaize, meaning to become a Jew. So for a Gentile to obligate himself to all facets of the law of Moses, including circumcision, is for that Gentile to become a Jew. And Paul says, no, they can't do that, because God made his promise to Abraham that he would bless the nations. And he can't bless the nations as nations if they become Jews. And so Paul has like ethnic reasoning in his legal reasoning in Romans 4. And so he says, don't concern yourself. So that's, that's the issue. So then they're like, okay, okay, we, we've at least solved, solved the circumcision one, but it still, it still brings it up, what are the Gentiles obligated to? And that's what Acts 15 is about. So Acts 15 says, what are the Gentiles obligated to do? We've got all these Gentiles who are now joining the covenantal people, but we don't know, like, what do they do? And we agree, okay, don't get circumcised, because that would, that would make them become Jews, and we don't need that, because God promised to bless them as nations, but now, what do they do? And uh, so they reason, and they come to the conclusion that, well, here's what they do. They um, don't commit uh, sexual immorality. Mm -hmm. They uh, don't eat things contaminated by idols, and they don't consume blood. Mm -hmm. um, the blood prohibition, why do they apply the blood, blood prohibition? It's, it's life. It's, it's got, blood is the vehicle of life, and you don't mess with blood. It belongs to God. Don't mess with blood. Um, uh, don't, don't do stuff with idols. That's reasonable, because now you're devoted to the God of Israel, and the sexual immorality stuff. Um, and again, the question is, what from the Mosaic law are we obligating at the Gentiles? And they, the answer is food contaminated by idols, sexual morality, and uh, blood. Uh, and so because, they're, because the assumed aspect of the debate is what aspects of the Mosaic law do they have to do, it's assumed that when they say sexual immorality, they mean sexual morality as defined by the Mosaic law. So then the logic there 
Um, it's it's uh, scriptural. They just come up. They 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 read they read the prophets together, and they see that the prophets um, will uh, that one the prophets prophesied that one day the nations would join Israel, and they would learn Israel's ways as they are built up in their midst. And so this is a long convoluted answer to get to this one really interesting part. So we'll go to Jeremiah twelve fifteen. Jeremiah 12, 15. I'll just read it. I have it. Okay, go ahead. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again to each to his heritage and each to his land. And the next verse. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people. Learn my ways. To swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Paul. Then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. Okay, they will, they, the Gentiles, will learn the ways of my people, it's Israel, and they will be built up in my midst. This is where we get this fascinating look into ancient Jewish scriptural reading practices, where they understood uh, the meaning of certain texts based on shared vocabulary with other texts. So if this text uses all this vocabulary, and this text uses all this vocabulary, it's, it's reasonable to read them together, right? Um, so this text is one of the texts that, they, that James quotes. He says, okay, guys, um, we've come in Acts 15, when they're all talking about what are the Gentiles obligated to do. They say, okay, here's what they got to do. Uh, um, as it is written in the prophets, and then he quotes a bunch of prophetic texts, some of which come from Amos, and some of which come from that text, Jeremiah 12. In Jeremiah 12, it says, these nations who join us will learn the ways of my people, and they will consequently be built up in my midst in this language here is used because they're now in the presence of God. And in Leviticus, this phrase is used four times. It says, it's written, when, 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 when uh, God is giving the laws to his people, he says, okay, now this law, it doesn't, just, it doesn't just apply to you guys, Israel. This law also applies to the foreigner who's in your midst. So like, you know, Sabbath. If you live in Israel, you gotta keep the Sabbath, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Because you live in God's land and you abide by God's rules, that sort of thing. If you're a Gentile who happens to live in the land of Israel, God doesn't care whether you keep like the dietary system. That's just for Israel. But there are a handful of laws that obligate even the foreigner who lives in my midst. That text, that precise vocabulary is used four times in the it's sexual impurity, food contaminated by idols, and the blood prohibition. So they get that language from Jeremiah, where the nations will join in the restoration. They see that in, my, in, that in my midst language. They go to Leviticus and look at all the times that it says that, and it's the things that they bring up. So in other words, they, they derive from the law itself, and from the they read the law and the prophets together to figure out what is it that is incumbent upon the Gentiles, legally speaking. And so we're... We're all Gentiles, right? So we're temples, yeah. and we have the Holy Spirit, and we have a high priest interceding on our behalf, and so Paul still has a high view of confession. Yeah. Like, so 
we're saved by faith. Yeah, it's absolutely correct. Yeah, but our obedience matters, and confession yeah. matters. Yeah, for, and be, because you're confessing to Christ, the High Priest, yeah. to intercede for you. Yeah, you're not confessing. I mean, you're confessing to the community, but that's for the betterment of yourself and the community. It's Christ, the High Priest, who hears your hears your prayer and confession. One First John says, um, uh, if if we sin, um, we, if, and if we confess our sins, we we have a high priest who is faithful to forgive us. High priest sin. And, uh, sorry, gesture to the whiteboard as if my drawing of heaven was still there. Um, so I, I have lots of questions and thoughts, but I want to hear more from you guys. So like, kind of let loose on the questions. I. I I want to hear... If you need to go, that's not going to fit me if you need to go. I know it's late. It's later than you probably thought. So sorry. Um, so if you need to leave, you're not going to fit me. The thing about our current cultural moment that we're living in, the context in which God wants to dwell and advance his kingdom, what are some of the thoughts and questions that you all have? Um, if we have anything, I want to hear more about the, 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 the sexual issues that we all see, that we all have as humans with bodies that we... We have our own sexual proclivities and desires that sometimes go to whack where they want to be. But I want to hear from y'all and think about what's going on in our world. What questions come to mind? Um, what are the tough questions? Again, like going back to John asking Jesus, no questions are off limits. It's kind of cool to hear about the confession piece. Because I'm always going, like, am I disqualified? Am I out as pastor? And it sounds like Actually, there's way much more grace in Leviticus than I realized, and in the New Testament. Then that's 100. Well, I, there's tons of grace in the New Testament, obviously. But that, that's that's the uh, that's the deal. But I just I cringe when I hear sort of the the caricatures about OT versus Old Testament versus New Testament. Like it's it's been been grace all the way down. Like it, grace, Jesus didn't introduce grace. Thank God. Like uh, and that's that's the that I mean. So Jesus is awesome. Um, and he's the one who intercedes uh, for us constantly. But so when you want when you want to think about a disjunction, right? We often think about law versus faith or law versus grace. It's been grace in the Old Testament and grace in the New. If you want to make a contrast, if you feel like the need to make a contrast for some reason, you don't have to. But if you want to, if you want to make a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament, here's the big difference: our high priest will never die. That high priest could only enter into the sacred space for like 30 seconds. And even when he did, he had to wave incense in front of himself. He, could, he had to block his own view of the divine glory with incense. He had to go in with an incense thing and, and do that so that he would not see the divine glory or else he would die. Christ is our high priest who is at the right hand of the Father forever. He will never die again. So he'll constantly, he's constantly in the presence of the Father interceding. So if you want to make a contrast, go there. Um, you don't need the grace contrast. In fact, please don't do that because you're sawing the branch off that you all want to sit on. And I said, so I'll go to you. I, I, I only mentioned, I only exclusively mentioned the same sex behavior stuff because that was sort of the, the topic we talked about. Um, I don't want, I, I would feel really bad if I were to be heard to be singling that out. Um, uh, um, the New Testament, Jesus, Paul. James, John, all the apostles, uh, care about all sexual sins. Now, once, at one level, you're like, oh, great. No, you know, all stuff to worry about, right? But like, my point is, it's like, they're not just like hammering on that thing only. In fact, that's probably one of the things that's mentioned the rarest. Um, not to say that it doesn't matter, um, but it's, uh, as often is mentioned, is all, all the other stuff. Um, adultery, uh, lust, um, obviously the famous teaching of Jesus, if you, if you do lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So, 
you know, the New Testament isn't like singling out that one behavior. Um, but I bring up is that, like as a pastor of our people knowing that in our context we've got people that are like LGBTQ affirming and then we have people that are like, like why, why do you hate the Bible? And then these are things that people have said to me along the way. And so it's like, we've got to talk about it. Like it was a public event, the cross, we've got to be able to ask our questions and be shaped and informed uh, by Christ, by the word, by one another as we share. So this is a great opportunity for us. So yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Well, you were mentioning, so covenant breaking things that would cause God's presence to leave versus uh, commission, transgression things. So what he is saying in the New Testament, hmm. Blood and idolatry. Are those covenant breaking things? Are those in, in Acts 15, they're simply that's not the topic. In Acts 15, the topic is what are Gentiles obligated to do? Um, what what happens when they you know fail at those obligations is not a topic of discussion in Acts 15. Um, it's simply the, the topic in Acts 15 is okay, do they need to get circumcised and do all this stuff? Or what? And then they answer, no, it's just these things. So that's not the topic of discussion in Acts 15. Um, when you get, to, that's why Paul's letters are so so relevant and helpful here, is because he he has um, a for us a very um, um, he's got a great deal of patience, but he does have a, a line in the sand, as it were. Um, and so in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 is where he mentions those who do these things. And it's not just, he, he says like 10 things, right? It's not just like it's 10 things. It says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, so it's for that reason that I think it's important to both be clear about and, um, and why I don't think it's fair when people say, oh, you're just being, you know, whatever, making too big a deal out of this, or judgmental or whatever, I'm like, okay, fair enough. I'm making a big deal out of it because I think that's the way Jesus and Paul talk about it. Paul says, you do not have inheritance in the kingdom of God. Um, now, that said, the other nine things he lists in the text are things that all of us do. Um, uh, he, so he mentions, you know, he mentions greed, and he mentions, uh, I think I think he mentions gossip in that same text. Um, yeah, so, so um, now granted, that's kind of the whole point of the whole, what's that, what's one of the many points of the Holy Spirit, is that the sacred spirit um, does actually transform you, so that you have a heart that is actually transformed, and is now single-heartedly devoted to God, such that you actually have the desire to obey God in this was commandments, um, meaning Paul, Paul, Paul's not like a like a naive idealist. He knows that people aren't sinless. Suddenly, the moment the Spirit hits you, you're sinless. I mean, he knows that people continue to sin. Um, that's why pastorally, um, you have to um, speak about um, uh, your willingness to um, uh, what's the word. Uh, Fight your own sin. Uh, resist it. Resist it by the power of the Spirit. Uh, in the same way that I, I, mean, I don't struggle with same-sex attractions, right? That's not something that I, uh, that's not a thing I struggle with. Um, but I struggle with anger. Um, I, I have a short temper. Um, and Paul has a lot to say about people who are angry. Um, and so I, I have to work on um, uh, my 
by Tinker. Um, and so uh, that's one very non, not sexy example, right? But I could give you other sexy examples, would, right? Would that be the distinction um, when we talk about how we treat it? And I say it being like homosexuality and those acts in the modern context is that I think that we can all accept that the rest of those list of nine are quote unquote sins and things that we strive not to be. But when it's approached in the modern context, that homosexuality is actually, there's arguments that it's not actually a sin at all. Right, right, right. That it's, it's actually something that should be accepted, celebrated, right. and part of the church body. Right. Um, and then the argument of grace for homosexuality um, goes beyond just saying, like, we have grace for all sinners, but actually we're going to have grace for saying that we're going to accept this act as if it was between a man and a woman. Yeah, yeah. I, I, if I tell me if, if I start to answer it in a way that didn't answer your question, just interrupt me. But um, what I think I hear you saying is there, there's a difference between sort of acknowledging that we have to ex extend, have to, and should extend grace to all people uh, who are uh, to all people. Period. And then, and that that grace extends to people who are struggling against it. Um, but that's different than someone who says this particular thing is not a sin and I don't need to struggle against it. Exactly. Um, and yeah, I, again, this is, this is where a text like 1 Corinthians 6, um, actually similar, a text in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, look, uh, I have committed no wrong that I'm aware of, but I'm not thereby acquitted, acquitted um, only, to quote uh, Tupac, only God can judge me. Um, <laughs> that is Paul's, wow. Paul's first. Um, <laughs> Only God can judge me. And there's a real, and, and Jesus is the same kinds of parables. We, we, we and tares, and, and none of us are going to judge ahead of the time. Uh, God's the final judge precisely because he's the one who knows everything. Um, uh, and, and more than just because of his omniscience. But, but it's, he is the only one with the panoramic vision. Um, I don't have it. And so I consequently can't make a judgment in the sense of a final judgment. I cannot say... John, you're out. Um, it's not. It's not my role to be the executor of the final judgment. But um, I do feel the responsibility to say quite strongly that, like a text like one Corinthians six, um, it it requires that I be straightforward and honest about what I think the text is saying and about what the possibilities are of not repenting of those things, namely, uh, what he says, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. So uh, I'm not the one who precludes someone from the kingdom of God. It's not my role to do that. Um, it's only my role. In fact, Paul says the opposite of what we all typically say. Um, uh, Paul says, I'm not the one who's supposed to judge outsiders. Like, Paul doesn't care what's going on inside the church. He, of course, of course, like it's, of course, they're not obeying God's law. They're not God's covenant people who, they're not, they, they, don't, they don't give up. Like, it's like, of course they're not. He goes, my job is to judge people inside the church. And, but judge, what he means by that is make them aware of what is necessary of them. And, and part of that judging is extending the grace and, and asking, you know, telling them to repent. Um, and also is warning them of what will happen um, if they go down that road without repentance. Would that not be... Does that, does that make sense? I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to like, be... I'm <laughs> Uh, I, I'm trying not to be like marble mouth about it. I, I, I want to speak straight, but I, but, it, but it's just it, it is one of those issues. I mean, not just oh, no, same favor. I mean, yeah. all all the issues, all, all the things mentioned are 
are, are that um, because you get the same logic in, in Galatians six. Is if anyone's caught in a transgression, confront him. Um, and then he notice the next thing he says. He goes, but do it carefully, lest you yourself get caught in transgression as well. Because it's it's he he. In other words, he says, yeah, you got to judge in the sense of make decisions, not judge in the sense of like be a jerk. Judges and like make decisions and make people aware of the truth, as as obviously the Apostle Paul tells it. Um, but that he's also aware that coming having those kinds of confrontations might lead you to think that you're above judgment, and so he says, watch out for yourself as well, lest you fall into. Anyway, you were going to ask a follow-up. Yeah, well, the the question is because it's such a hot topic. It's very difficult for Christians to express their opinion on this specific issue without coming across as hateful yeah. or not loving. Uh, and Paul does say many times that like the reproof, the judgment, the building up is for your brothers and sisters inside community, right? Like you yeah. just mentioned, he has actually as a pastor where he says, like, I don't care what people are out there, but of course they're going to send me. You're to like bind yeah. body together, right? right? So how does the church? Where do we, quote unquote, like take a stand? Right. How do we respond to these issues if we're called to reprove each other inside community? Right. How then do you relate when you're being challenged by outsiders that are not? Oh. By the same rules, right? Like. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. How do you? Uh. Yeah. Um. That, <laughs> yeah. I? You take that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Go I, I mean, Paul would call that persecution and say endure it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I, I feel like I have a lot of those kinds of conversations, and I just feel like my because they're not in the church, the point of the conversation, the point of the relationship, isn't anything that is actually in the Bible, except for to love them, and that that is like the foundation of the gospel and the foundation of what God calls us to do to everyone no matter who they are, country, creed, whatever, Jew, Gentile, like, is the love of God. And so that's my, like, sole aim, goal, purpose, like, check mark is, mm -hmm. did I love them like Jesus loves them? Mm -hmm. And if I did that, then I can walk away knowing that, like, I've done what God's called me to do. And if they are open to having a deeper conversation about their sexuality, then, yeah, let's have that, let's have that conversation. But I feel like to push... It's almost like what we were talking about before of like the Gentiles becoming like a Jew. Like, I don't want to push that person who's not even like a part of the family of God into something that they're not yet. Um, and so. No, yeah. I, I understand I, that yeah. on the individual level, absolutely. Okay. Like, I would never, as an individual, like accost someone for their lifestyle. No, no, but like, like on, on, no, no, no. Like, on the individual level, like, that's obviously what God calls us to is to love everybody, treat them well, and treat them just like as Christ treated us, because we're sinners in the same way, right? We have been enlightened. How does the church in America move forward by maintaining, like, biblical truth, which what we just kind of, like, established, connecting Leviticus to the New Testament, by, like, protecting those walls when being like hammered by the outside and doing yeah. it in a loving way. That's yeah. that's where I can I, don't can know. Can I add something to what you're saying yeah. and you can answer both at the yeah. same time? Because I'm feeling you on what you're saying and I, I also feel like I don't know, as as ministers and then as 
longer games. It's getting harder and harder to um, know exactly how far we're supposed to go in holding I, uh, holding accountable. I don't know is, is yep. the right word, but that are we under obligation as believers within the church to guard, you know, sort of the fold and, you know, we're, we're being told by the Lord to adhere to certain things and that upholds a certain level of unity and purity and peace amongst yeah. the congregation. So when those, you know, things of the world seep into the church and it becomes more like, words like judgment and things are thrown around, yet, like in Matthew 18 and all kind of things like you're talking about, there, it seems like we're under a certain level of obligation yeah. to confront, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, it's all sexual immorality, it's like, it, there's so right, much not, that's become yeah. so normal in our culture, like, for a guy yeah. and a girl to live together before they're married is like a normal thing. But within the church, right. like I don't know that we guard that as much as we maybe should. Right. I just it's sort of a giant question mark. Well, yeah. are we under any obligation? Like yeah. at which point do we, you know, overstep bounds towards like we're acting as judge? Yeah. You know? Totally, yeah. I uh I'll go not beyond in the bad sense. I won't just I won't just quote the Bible and leave it there. So I, that's what I mean, I'll go beyond it. But um um, hopefully not like a transgressive sense, so, but uh, but that but that, that, that's the sort of sort of community guidelines you're getting in you know, a text like Matthew 18, um, where he he says like when the person if a person commits this kind of transgression, go confront him or her about it, um, and bring witnesses, um, and you do it. I mean, at, at, now to add Paul's language vocabulary, do it with a spirit of gentleness because you know you could be caught in the same thing. Um, um, and, and, and give them multiple chances. I mean, confront them again and again and again. If this is the sort of thing that they're just sort of saying, no, you're, you know, that's, that's not a, that's not something I uh, need to abide by or whatever, uh, the language of Jesus is, then treat him as an outsider. Um, now, again, that's why I say I'm going to go beyond it in the sense of um, say more than that, um, which is that in our, our context, how do, how do we treat someone who, um, who, who is n not abiding by uh, the, the covenant community standards that we think the Lord is calling us to. I think we follow the same guidelines of, of, of gentle confrontation. Um, and that I think that in so doing, you're not being judgmental in the, it, you're not being judgmental in a sense beyond what God has called you to. In other words, God has called leaders to be, um, congregants to be, to be shepherds of people. I mean, shepherds have to continue. Yeah, you have to um, guide your people. That's what a shepherd does. And so, Can I do that now? <laughs> yeah. No, so, I'm serious. Oh, hold, okay, hold on. Go yes, I'm right for this. But, um, uh, but the problem is, and this is where I really mean this, is also I'm not a pastor, I've never been one. So I I don't want to speak beyond that because um, I, uh, you know, I've only ever had to like confront Elijah. Um, so uh, I don't know what it's like to talk to another adult human about this sort of stuff. Um, so I feel like I feel pretty comfortable giving you those sort of guidelines and then um, and then relying on John. Yeah. So it's 10 o'clock. I wanted to 
one, two things to kind of shape and then try and leave by like, at least wrap up this time with maybe one or two questions. So I was going to say, Paul's a theologian, and he operates in a theological context where they're, they're talking, having these conversations. For us as people that are a part of Normandy, it's, it's, it's somewhat different. And so when you're looking at the world as it is right now, what I'm seeing um, a lot of is from Jude. Like what Jude is like, when he gets after, if you go read Jude, this tiny little book, he's like, watch out for the bad teachers. Because the teachers, it's going to incur like this apocalyptic judgment on it. Um, like it's really intense if you read Jude. It's really kind of like, no, can you, what, what are you referencing? It's just so intense. So, um, what do you know? So what? Yeah, what do you know? Enoch, who, who walked with God, and he wrote a book apparently. So anyway, so pastorally, um, like this is really like a huge opportunity for us to actually become a body that people are attracted to. Um, because you can't post up on Instagram and expect to change people's lives and confront them. You can't like retweet something and be like, oh, I've done this thing. So you get in the pit and actually try to love people that think this way, operate this way, whatever it is, differently. So like. The church is being slaughtered because evangelicalism, because all the leaders have been the, the, the uh, Pharisees. Bobby Zacharias. I mean, like, horrible. Like, Canica. Yeah. Horrible. Like, just completely dismantled. So when you talk about the shepherding thing, it's like actually becoming a people that shepherd one another is going to cost something more than you're probably all prepared to pay it's something altogether different than most are expressing. You come and you hear pastor preach and then you don't actually come in love. Anyway, thinking about what Jenny, you're saying, how you're saying, what I'm like, like what do we do is like, the early church, well, they, they were like really racially diverse. They were really, they were really generous. Like they actually sacrificed to the point when they threw a baby on the pile heap, they went and got him. Like they, they lived in such a way people thought it was attractive. And like your friend of mine, Tom Wright, says like each generation has to come and like has to get fresh men. Like we can't rely on my dad or your dad or Dr. Jeffers or Paul Sl I mean, you can't rely on other people to get fresh vision from God. You've got to go chew afresh the word of God as a generation. And we do that as individuals. So we get on and read our podcast and listen to it and we're self-righteous and hammer people. Bullcrap. But like it's it's a community event that we do together, we process together, we pray together, and we confess together, we share together. So we say, like when we get to the teaching, like the Jews, like watch out for the teachers. We confront it together. It's like something that we're doing together, and then we cast a vision that people could actually be attracted to, a way of life that they're like, there's something about that, because they weren't doing like they're preaching the good news. They're like proclaiming the witness, like Jesus is alive. He's, he's not dead, he's alive. And then people were added to their, their number. And so that's like a completely different thing. So I'm just talking about you, Hunter, of like, should I write a blog? <laughs> no, because my mom will read it, and then I'll think about that. <laughs> but like, the way that we live together, I think, could actually shape a vision for people live together and like making space where the table has like people at it. So like, pastorally, I'm thinking that. And then like, to, uh, like, I. Part of, I think of Paul as a theologian, like the, the deep questions that I'm just, there's not time to do it. But it's like, all the, oh, this is like, 
heaven and hell stuff and salvation. Can you lose your salvation? And, and there's all kinds of questions that are wrapped up in this thing that's like a hot-button thing for us. And so that as pastorally, I'm like vision, shepherding, caring. Like how do we like live together in such a way that people would want to come into it? But then like just on the, the questions, I mean, I don't know if there's enough time to it. It's just like what are some of the like theological questions? Because y'all are asking a lot of practice, which is good. And not that you can't speak to practice. Um, but like, just like, how do we think about these things? How do we think about, like a friend of mine had two lesbians that came to church and they had kids and they were married. And like, can they take communion? Like, what do you do? You know, like, how do you, like, how do you pastor them? How do you love them? You know, literally. Like, you know, there's men that say, uh, a couple of theologians that I respect are like, I'm a gay Christian. And you said it to one generation and lose their mind. I'm like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I believe in historic Christianity's like orthodox view of marriage, but I'm gay. How do we deal with that? What do you do when you sit around in front of a girl and she says, I'm non-binary and I'm a lesbian? And then like, how do you love them and invite them into it? It's like, I want us to like think about those. We can't do that all now, but those are the type of things I want to hear from like the questions that you're thinking about. Like, do we keep them from communion? Do we let them do communion? Like, there's all kinds of like. How do we love them? Like, how do we think about those things? So, I don't know if there's any questions. We probably have time for like one or two, and then we'll just end. And then Paul, can you just answer all those things? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of where I'm at. Because I'm like, yeah, that's a great yeah, question. Lauren, do you have any questions you want to ask? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was rude. Actually, that was, we should not have done that. All right, see. No, yeah. She should not have done that. I'm so sorry. I think that's important to acknowledge that, like, Right now, like our generation, baby, I'm so sorry. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge and understand, like in this day and age, we have the greatest amount of, of like outed LGBTQ, like obviously of pride. They do not want to go to church. I don't know the last time I had a conversation with them. Most do not want to go to church because of, of yeah. wrong reactions. And so as we're talking about it in the context of a church, it's equally important to highlight the relational side of first and foremost before I bring you to Normandy. Let me bring you to my home. I think that's, it's important to talk about all these theological things. And trust me, we can go on. Like, let's go. But like, equally in that acknowledging, like, you cannot hold the expectation of this, these people to want to come to church that this is what they've been met with. But then, okay, sorry. Mm -hmm. I think we have to acknowledge that. But on a theological side, shit. Um, in, in a lot of churches today, there is this idea of, um, what's the word? Dis. Something. Sit. Sit up. You're not. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. Elders cannot, and pastors can There's certain sins that don't. Disqualify. Disqualifying. Yes, I was thinking And there's like these disqualifying sins, right? So mm -hmm. that changes from body to body and church to church. But consistently, homosexuality is a huge one. Because when, especially in the South, when you see a church who has a you know pride flag and they have a gay elder, everyone's kind of like, whoa, for a second, because it's so different from what we're used to. Yeah. So, hey, where does this idea of disqualifying sin come from, and how do we approach other local bodies who, who are our brothers in Christ who have these? Right. For you know, we have these gay pastors. That, okay, so how do we approach that within the body? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. In, Paul, in Paul's correspondence with Timothy, um, he talks about. Um, Things that need that that need to characterize people in leadership, 
Um, and so some of the things he mentions are um, about um, just the character of the person. Yeah. Um, and, and one or two of them have to do with uh, the kind of um, family they have, with the kind of husband he, he is or kind of wife she is, and also the kind of, uh, at the time, you know, polygamy was more of an issue, so he says you have to be the husband of one wife, husband of one woman. Um, and so that's where the logic of so-called disqualifying sins uh, is, is derived. Yeah. Paul doesn't use that language as far as I know. Um, then by virtue of just the legal logic of, okay, well, if, if that sin, then also this, you know. Um, so that's, that's where that comes from as far as I know. Uh, in terms of how you correspond to other bodies, um, again, I, yeah, I, I'm not a pastor, I don't know. Uh, it, it seems I got to, my own problems. It seems to me that, um, it seems to me that you're, all, you're kind of constantly having to walk the line with being uh, truthful with what you believe to be true and um, yet always realizing that part of your vocation as a Christian is to um, ex ex extend uh, love and gentleness toward people with whom you disagree. Um, so yeah, I, I, in terms of, in, in terms of, it's another practical issue of, okay, well, can we do this event together? I mean, uh, yeah, I, I would be the one to answer that question. Um, I would say yes, but I mean, I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, back to this qualifying sins, like, because we were describing an elder, right? You have to be the husband, mm -hmm. the one, you know, all these things. Uh, it's also in Titus, if you must be blameless with children, you cannot be charged. Right. Because we're about to say, like, you know, are we saying that, hey, elders, if your children decide not to, you know, they go and, you know, Because the text is so uh, underdetermined, it's simply, you can't, what, what was the precise thing? You have a, a child who's disobedient or something like that, right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a term that's pretty flexible, right? It depends obviously how you define disobedience. And um, obviously, I, I suspect I know how Paul might define it with respect uh, to the Jewish law. But, um, but it's, it's, it's so um, undefined that that's the basis for the, Many definitions, right, in our own cultural context. Um, again, I, I don't have an answer off the top of my head. Um, I suspect um, uh, the kinds, because it's an issue of leadership, it's the kinds of sins that indicate you cannot lead uh, would be the kinds of things. Uh, but yeah, I probably couldn't speak further to it only because it's underdefined in, in Titus. Yeah. Two questions for you. One of them is, um, I'd just be interested in your thoughts on the difference between someone who is attracted to people of the same sex and then people who are acting on that attraction yeah. in scripture and what that looks like from a theological perspective. Yeah. And the second one is kind of what we've been hitting around or talking about, I think, is what are the things that are essential and what are the things yeah. that are not necessarily essential. So for example, there's a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. There's a guy, Richard Hayes, wrote it. And in that book, he talks about how he is a pacifist. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't believe that a Christian can be a soldier right. because they shouldn't be taking lives. Right. He says, I wouldn't look at somebody who is a believer and a soldier and tell them they have no place in my church. Right. Because there are 
legitimate ways to interpret scripture and look at that. Yep. He says the same thing with respect to homosexuals. He says, I don't believe that. He says, I believe that acting on same-sex desires is uh, sinful, in my view, but I think there are people interpret that differently. Mm -hmm. So I'd just be interested in your thoughts on kind of what are the essentials there, because there's a wide range of things that goes from not just right. sexuality, but sure. to... all except, yeah. I mean, an unbelievable array of things from right. divorce yep. to everything else. And you talk about church discipline, right. and we start moving in that direction. What does that look like? So those two thoughts. Yeah, yeah. The first one, uh, the, 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 again, to speak to the New Testament, it only ever singles out the behavior. Um, it doesn't speak to uh, someone's sort of intrinsic attraction. So that in our own modern context, um, uh, I someone with, uh, I, I think that, just I'll use the language of Paul the Apostle. I think Paul the Apostle would not um, use condemnatory language towards someone with the desire who did not act upon them. Um, because just by definition, we all have desires that we, we all constantly have desires um, that we don't act upon. And the, it's typically the behavior or activity, or no, it is exclusively the behavior or activity that is uh, condemned in, in the New Testament. Not simply um, <coughs> uh, with same-sex behavior, but just all, you know, all those sorts of things. Now, some, the obvious exception is sometimes sometimes sins are by definition in, intrinsic, right? So, like, greed is a desire, right? So, don't be greedy. That, but obviously, greed has an obvious outworking, namely like working toward just making more money as your only goal, right? That's really. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think the New Testament would would distinguish between those, um, and, uh, and and in fact would have to precisely because as a part of our mortality the same things that we have that just have bodily decay right we have we are we wear out the same thing is assumed about our mental and heart states we just have the kinds of hearts that desire the wrong stuff um, and so the, the the battle is to reorient our, our desires so that we desire the right things um, and in fact that's actually Paul the own language Paul the spirit has reoriented your desires the spirit has reoriented your affections so that they are ordered toward God but because we still inhabit this corruptible body we have to constantly bend it on. Uh, to the second uh, question about essentials um, yeah again I probably repeat myself with respect to um, some of the stuff I mentioned before about 1 Corinthians 6 I think you have to be truthful about the fact that Paul says lists you know these eight things and says you won't inherit the kingdom of god it sounds essential to me um so because of it because he includes the language of a, a, a negative outcome at the final judgment that that's what makes me call these things essential um but because he also has all the other pastoral things he would say namely that a person can repent or a person can uh um uh, a person may be ignorant right um, a person may be ignorant of a certain legal prohibition um, all those sorts of things, I think, would, and Paul's a human, right? Um, so he would understand that there are very human reasons for um, uh, people to still continue to commit certain sins. Um, so again, uh, that's, I, I would call it essential. Again, not simply because I have some sort of like, you know, um, uh, what's the word, uh, prejudice, um, but because Paul lists it as a behavior that precludes somebody from the kingdom of God. That, that's the reason why I, I included it as an essential thing. Um, but I would then include all the caveats about about the, the things that are available to the person, namely repentance, confession, intercession of Christ, all those sorts of things. Um, did I get your question? 
And then, and then in terms of how do we know? Oh yeah. So the other thing is, uh, yeah, this is big. We haven't talked about it yet. Um, uh, which well, I'll go short, but it's easy. I mean, so that's that's a biblicistic answer. What in other words, I gave you a scripture and I gave you a, a, a verse to to justify my view, right? What if I didn't have that verse? Could I still justify my opinion? And the reason I think yes is because lots of the particular on issues of, of sex, but other issues as well, but particular on issues of sex, um, they are positions that are derived from the notion that God created uh, a complementary pair of humans, so that he created a male and a female, that they belong together. Um, so that even if, even if we didn't have 1 Corinthians 6, I would still say we're in central issue because of the logic of male, male, female, female, violating a creational aspect of a, a, a fabric of God's creational uh, creation, uh, male and female. Um, so I think that's actually what Leviticus is doing. Leviticus, the, the Jewish law, is sort of just creating prohibitions that, you know, bring God's creational aspects to their to their fulfillment or their goal. So, uh, and in the first century, um, Jesus and other Jews of this time. They read Genesis 1 that way. Namely, because God created it that way, that must indicate that was God's goal in creation. And therefore, to do anything that deviates that is to, is to go against God's own goal for his creation. Um, that's why I would call it a, to use your language, an essential issue, because of you're, you're going against um, uh, God's own goal for his own creation. Now, again, I always want to include all the other caveat stuff I'd say about all the all the outs that Paul would give a person with respect to repentance and confession and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, did I answer that question? I think so. I think the, the question though is also like with how do we decide with other stuff? Well, yeah, well, with like pacifism. Yeah. So, for example, saying somebody shouldn't take someone's life. Yeah. That would be an issue of blood, I would think, right. because you're spilling another person's blood, which is the life, right. which would put it in an essential category. Right. I would think. Yeah. And. But we're okay setting in pews of people who are in the military. Yeah. Or, or there's lots of Christians who are great with the death penalty. Right. You know? Yeah. And so that, because that's the thing to me that it's, and if it's, you know, Jesus looking at the woman saying, you don't have one husband, you have many husbands, and, we, you know, whatever, it's like those are sexual issues as well right. when it comes to those issues. So yeah. I guess that's, that's the thing to me is it's like, so the whole so the, the reason would be because um, broader context indicates what stuff's permissible and not on what grounds. So again, in the Jewish law, it prohibits anyone from spilling blood from an animal. Like you can't even kill an animal away from the altar. That's a death penalty act. Um, uh, you have if you slaughter an animal, it has to be at the temple um, because God wants to teach them how precious blood is. So if you slaughter an animal, it has to be at the temple. Um, also. Uh, uh, in, in the Jewish law themselves, they, they have the death penalty, which indicates that though spilling blood is um, a, uh, an issue, um, uh, there is a there is a, a God in the Jewish in the Jewish law a God given medium for uh, what we would call sort of legal state penalties. So, in other words, to put it again legally, they distinguish between execution and murder, and that that that. Um, that same distinction between those events seems to carry over into the New Testament, where um, there's a distinction between different kinds of killing. Um, so, for example, uh, Romans 13, right? Paul, Paul talks about government as 
uh, bearing the sword of God to exact vengeance against those who commit injustice. That sounds like justifying some sort of state power against what we would call state level injustice. Is that, is that, so in other words, the broader context makes, makes plain that I think there are distinctions between certain things. Like, like, not all, not all blood spilling is the same. Yeah, I guess my question is when some people, are, when people have different views that are informed by scripture, or yeah. Yeah. that are saying, I'm somebody who believes that there should be no oh. death penalty, yeah. or you know, Christians shouldn't be soldiers, and then you got that, and you have the other, and they're both informed by scripture, they're both yeah. looking at it just as, as you have. Yeah. That's where I'm saying, how much room is there on the same pew, the same church, if you yeah. hold those different that's, views? Yeah, and I, that's, and that may be a more pastoral question. No, keep going. This is but right, that's right the now. same thing, whether it's with the death penalty, whether it's with grounds for divorce, whether it's with sexuality, whether there's any number of issues, how much room is there on the same pew for people that hold different views that would all say, I'm informed by scripture, yeah. mm. I'm interpreting it in different ways, and we've come to different conclusions on these things. Yet, I would say I need the salvation of Christ for sins, and everything else beyond that, where are the things that are yeah, things yeah. that we would, that, that's, that's the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 no, that, that, that's, that's great. I mean, and again, this is why I kind of opened whatever it was 20 minutes ago with the fact that it was like two hours ago. <laughs> no, not that, not that <laughs> opening. My, other, my other opening about communica- my other opening about communication, the fact that interpretation is a public thing, and that on that on those grounds, some interpretations can be shown to be false. I mean, I, I don't believe that all interpretations are equally valid. Um, that's that's a, a, a position that is said a lot presently. Not presently here. I just mean in our cultural context. I don't think it's true in the same way that you wouldn't think it's true. Um, what, do you, what do you mean? Not all present, not all interpretations of communication events are this are this are equally valid. Not all, not all is good. So if I say, "Hey, she passed the bar," and you're like, "Wow, gosh, she hit a hole in one. That's awesome." You're like, "No, I didn't say that. What do you, why did you come to that conclusion? Those words don't mean that." Um, because interpretation is still it's still interpretation, but like we're always interpreting on the grounds of plausibility based on our shared assumptions about the way the language works, on the way that because of the way we because of our cultural assumptions. So if I say the words, she passed the bar, and you think I just said, I got over there, just hit a hole in one. Everyone else would be like, you're the only one who thinks that, man. Those words don't mean that. Um, and so that's an extreme example to say that I don't think all interpretations of, of text or communications are equally valid. It's just to say that then I think when you bring it to the level of, there's a grading scale. And so I think pacifism is just not talked about very much in the New Testament. Um, you get don't commit violence, but then there's also like the assumption that the state will continue to exact vengeance. Um, and so there seems to be a distinction between sort of, hey, if you get slapped in the face, don't slap the guy right back, but the state still has the, according to, I mean, according to Paul's Romans 13 case, right, the, the God-given authority to exact vengeance against those who do injustice. And so um, if that includes in a given cultural context, military, then that is what that sounds like. So that's why I would say, okay, I, I'm, I understand the pacifistic arguments, uh, but I think they can be pretty reasonably shown to be non-essential based on numerous texts. So even if we would disagree, I would still be like, but that's not an essential issue because I think it can be pretty clearly shown that there's justification for these. When it comes to other issues, like say the sexuality one, uh, 
again, this is now my interpretation, and I know there are people in the room who probably disagree, um, but that's why. But I, I think there's less um, debate about those. I think that um, I, yeah, I think there's less debate about those. I think it's. I hate to kind of hate to ever use the word obvious, but I think it's pretty pretty plausibly clear what what Paul is referring to there um, in those various texts and what I think. Um, what Jesus implicitly talks about in Matthew 19. So I, I, I'm just, I don't think the interpretations um, of those texts are valid. Which then means you go to the other, like, so can we send the same pew? Like, yeah, there's, there's a grading scale of, there's a, there's a grading scale of, 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 of what's essential and what's not, and it takes, I think, pairing that with sort of the creational mandates over against um, the, the plethora of texts that speak to those issues. Um, but again, because I'm not a pastor, I'll let John answer the question. Again. I'll answer it this way. we got to go. Yeah. But again, our mutual friend Tom Wright said, you in America, you, you, like a lot of times what we want is like a heaven or hell answer. Like right now. Tell me what, what you think of this situation, this situation, this situation. Are you in or are you out? And it's very American. Um, it's like left or right, Republican or Democrat. And in other places in the world, it's a lot easier to tease things out and have discussions like you're trying to do. So thank you, Paul. Hopefully this was somewhat enlightening, encouraging. Um, let's help. I'm a, I'll pray because I'm a pastor. But let's get the chairs back around the table, turn those things around, get beer cans up, throw them at John Kelly, ask some legal questions. And if, <laughs> if you want to, you can take us to the old monk or outside afterwards, but we'll get out of here. Um, Lord bless them um, and let them sleep and let all the kids sleep. And... Uh, Jesus, we really want to try and follow you um, humbly and help us, Lord. Uh, we love you. Thank you for all these parts. Bless them and keep them tonight um, for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys. Give them some light. Nope. Oh. I know, there are all of them.